but uh, we're rolling. So um, I really appreciate you coming out today, especially at, at great risk to your career and whatnot. <laughs> if you had a manager, they would probably be, they'd probably dissuade you from doing the uh, podcast. So I appreciate you at, at great personal risk. You're here today. We have Brendan Steinhauser, free market advocate, <laughs> former campaign manager for Senator John Cornyn. And definitely an integral part of the Tea Party grassroots movement from a few years ago. Now, sadly, I looked you up. I, tr- I was looking you up on Wikipedia. You don't get a lot of press there, man. We're going to have to hack in there and do some editing. It's good to stay under the radar on Wikipedia. It's sort of the Wild West. So, you know, I try and keep a low profile there if I can. Yeah, but I mean, certainly you deserve some credit. Well, I appreciate po- that. I appreciate <laughs> right? it. So. I kind of thought this would be, this is sort of like, what was your preparation to come out today? Was it similar to, uh, you know, maybe I'm idealizing this, but like going on the Colbert Report, sort of? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. No, <laughs> look, I mean, TV and radio interviews, they tend to be pretty tough because they're also so short. You want to say something very uh, memorable in a 20 second or 10 second clip, which is hard to do. When you have a little bit more time, you can be more conversational. You can kind of slow it down. And take your time to make your points but you know fox msnbc cnn i've done uh, those and others and the really the difficult part is that you can't see them you know you just kind of look at a screen or you're looking right. at a camera um, and you hear them in your earpiece hopefully the the audio is good but they're peppering you with questions so the key is really just to try and stay calm look straight ahead smile and and try and make some sense in a short amount of time Right. I, I've actually heard that those are pretty tough because it's kind of like they're, you know, you there's a delay in terms of the audio and whatnot, and they're kind of coming at you pretty qu- pretty quickly. So you've got to be like on your toes. Yeah, absolutely. It's very unnatural because you're sitting there in the studio and there's like usually one person there managing the camera and they're talking to New York or D.C. or wherever. And it's just sort of a, a different experience. It's It's more natural to be sitting in front of someone or uh, to at least kind of see them on the screen and you're talking to them in real time. But it, it does throw you off a bit because you're hearing them, but you're staring at a camera and there's a light in your eyes. So that that physical part of it that kind of disorients you is often right. the harder part. And then when they ask you the questions, you can usually kind of go back to what you want to say and uh, answer or dodge the questions, however the case is. I always thought you'd be a great guest on, uh, on Bill Maher's real-time show on HBO. Because I know Kibby went on there. Matt Kibby was on a couple of years ago. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to tweet it, Bill and be like, you need to get Brendan Stein. I've always wanted to see you in that environment. Um, it actually kind of gave me inspiration for the podcast was I was thinking because, you know, over the years you and I have had any number of hours upon hours of conversations about philosophy, history, politics, what have you. And, uh, so that was kind of the Genesis. I wanted to have a good back and forth between two people that are both, you know, respect each other, um, definitely on different sides of the aisle in a, in a lot of respects. But, you know, there's a certain, like, I probably trust your opinion and whatnot better than a lot of people that I actually agree with um, in terms of positions. Like, a lot of people just have positions, and they can't really back them up. And I know that's definitely not what you're about, which I appreciate. So um, I appreciate that. I, I do try and get to the truth, whatever it is. And sometimes you do have to kind of filter your message a little bit if you're representing a client or an organization or you're trying to make the case broadly for a system of government or economics or maybe even a political party. And it, it is hard because you can't defend everything that they say or do. Um, but one thing I never want to do is sort of lose my credibility by, you know, 
defending something that is indefensible. I think there's a lot of um, things that you can do to kind of provide a different perspective on a, a candidate or a political party or something like that. But certainly some things are, are beyond the pale and I just don't really have any interest in going and defending those things because I think that hurts uh, my long-term credibility and credibility for the, the ideas that I believe in. At the end of the day, I really do care about the ideas more than anything. And one quick note on, on Bill Maher, it's kind of interesting uh, one of my clients is Congressman Michael McCall, who represents uh, parts of Austin down to Houston, and actually did work with Bill Maher's producers on getting him on the show, and he went to talk about his book, uh, and Bill was actually very interested in what he was talking about. It's about uh, kind of terrorism and things that we haven't imagined that we need to imagine, um, and obviously with what's going on in the world, um, and certainly we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, today, but uh, it's a really interesting book. So that was kind of an interesting experience to work with them and kind of see how they operate. But they're very professional, very smart, as you would imagine. Um, and Bill, I think, is a really good host. And so I think people really do go enjoy going on his show. I I mean, you know, I, a lot of people have problems with Bill, and I kind of do to a certain extent. But I think what I admire about him is he's really the only voice on the left or from, you know, a remotely kind of left-center position that's really out there, you know, <laughs> most people are not, you know, there's not a Bill O'Reilly, bless, you know, rest his uh, career, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there there aren't those guys, like, there's all, you know, there's Rush, there's Bill, there's a lot of guys on the right that kind of are beating the drum, but there's not people on the left so much, other than, you know what I mean, it's kind of like, you have the, you know, I don't know. I guess there's not even a Chris Matthews anymore. It's more like what's Olbermann is like what? Yeah, the Rachel Maddow is pretty, I mean, pretty, you know, consistent and kind of hard left and respected. She's very bright. She's a good communicator. So she does well, I think, on MSNBC. Um, you know, I guess Chris Hayes is another one that does pretty well and uh, seems to be doing doing a good job with kind of the delivery of the message. Um, but, you know, the left is in an interesting place because they're kind of where the right was. Uh, you know, eight or nine years ago, I guess. And they're trying to kind of figure out what happened, what went wrong, um, and kind of where do we go from here, which is those are some big existential questions for kind of the left, just as they happened on the right a, a while back. So it's kind of been interesting to see uh, which direction they'll go, whether they will kind of double down on some of these things that they're doing or some of their ideas, whether they feel like they need to change their positions, whether they feel like they need to moderate or kind of stick to their guns and eventually wait out um, this president and what he does to the Republican Party. So it, it is kind of interesting to compare. Um, but, you know, I think I think that right now the, the problem that I see, we can get into the, some of this too, is just that it's so dispersed, which I think is a good thing. I'm glad that we have a lot of different media sources out there. But now it's like basically people just tune into the people they agree with. Right. It's that fragmentation of the media, ironically. Right. So it's good that, that there's not just a handful of big media companies that control everything and deliver the same message and there's no dissent. It's that there's so many um, news outlets out there and truly fake news that people just go and they find some website that's not even trying to be truthful or get or do any kind of journalism and they select that to get their news from because it says the most outrageous thing that they believe. Right. That kind of ties into, I, I didn't want to jump into this quite this early today, but I've really been focused on uh, Jean Baudrillard's work. And I don't know how familiar you are with him, but um, concepts like hyperreality and simulation and simulacra, essentially it's kind of, I mean, I'm breaking this down, you know, super, super, super <laughs> simply, but um, 
basically it's kind of this there's this media swirl it's like all these images messages you're constantly in this soup of ideas and whatnot and there's it's detached from reality like there's we're living in this kind of simulated world of media imagery and whatnot which you know kind of seems somewhat out there but i feel like trump's ascension is um it's kind of a turning point it's kind of i feel like i don't know if you remember in the matrix whenever there's a scene where uh they're trying to escape and they're on the phone and that kind of digitized stuff is creeping up all over them and then they finally get connected but right as that stuff is engulfing them that's kind of what i feel like words we last bastion of reality it's kind of been consumed by this hyper real state that we're in now where it's like totally it's it's no longer uh thinly veiled like it's it's out there you know what i mean it's like he's just shouting these sound bites and it's fake news and you know what i mean it's just it's a crazy environment yeah truth is really um something that i think that fewer and fewer people are paying attention to it's something that um just doesn't serve the purpose of you know those that want to either maintain power or achieve political power or economic power or whatever and so they're going to do whatever it takes to kind of manipulate people to get what they want i've seen a lot of that it's bipartisan it's not just politics it's part elements in religion and business and other things so it's really just sort of this weird place that we're in where we have all this information all of this ability um to to get information to consume news to know what's going on around the world we have more knowledge at our fingertips than ever um, not only from a news standpoint, but but we can study philosophy, we can study astronomy, anthropology, we can you know become experts in a lot of different fields because that information has been democratized, because it's been decentralized. But at the same time, people are somewhat choosing, I think, the easier route um, and the simplest route. And so we're sort of spending our time or wasting our time on things that I think don't have real value. And of course, everybody gets to decide how they want to spend their time, but we really are ignoring a lot of important things going on, whether it's uh, news events around the world, whether it's trends we need to pay attention to, um, you know, whether it's just, you know, trying to figure out how to kind of live our life in a, in a good way to kind of go back to first principles and figure out how to live happy, prosperous life lives and help others and that sort of thing. I feel like we are kind of all retreating into our, you know, into our little virtual reality. We're going right. into the matrix. We're choosing that. Right. And it's so the it's like the world is collapsing, but it's expanding at the same time. It's like we can connect with people on the other side of the globe, but it's carving up the globe as well. It's like these we're going back to the tribal world while being able to but it's not maybe restrained by borders. Right. It's almost Nowadays. like in the old days, you know, tribes would fight and kill each other, you know, within a few miles of each other. But now there's the ability for tribes to fight and kill each other across the globe, literally, because of transportation and communications uh, in this globalized world and just the endless possibilities. So ideology, hateful ideology, whether it is you know radical Islam or it is uh, other elements, I mean, people are basically able to harm those and kill those and, and preach this stuff and, and access this information online in, in almost a, a completely free way. And they have the capability to buy a cheap air plane ticket and travel around or get on a train and, and hurt people. So it's it's sort of, you know, I've been pretty optimistic generally in the arc of history. I think that generally things are better now than they were 100 years ago or 500 years ago. But you really do have to wonder what's ahead in the next, uh, you know, 50, 60 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always, I think, been somewhat critical of capitalism. And I think just as of late, especially, you know, I kind of divorced myself from the day-to-day din of politics over the years once kind of after 2008 
just because of fatigue, to be quite honest. I just, I'm, it's like, I've got that rational mind. It's like, I'm trying to, I want to figure it out. I'm going to, I'm going to solve this. I'm going <laughs> to figure it all out. And when you realize that you simply just cannot do that, it's, you know, it, it can be tough to go about your day-to-day routine when you're trying to combat these, you know, large scale problems. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I go through some of that too, in that I, I realize what I can and can't control. And, you know, I, I figure at the end of the day, if I can just take care of myself and my family and my friends and my community, that's about all you can do. You can see when you're doing something in your community that actually makes an impact. You can interact with real people in a real place. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in that. So I, I think there's certainly a movement toward that. I think people are retreating back to the real world and back to real communities because we are losing some of that. Um, and sure, I, I read the paper every day and I read what's going on around the world, um, whether it's economic collapse or the North Koreans shooting ICBMs or it's, uh, you know, Christians being killed in Egypt as happened this week or whatever, whatever else is going on, the Manchester terrorist attacks. I mean, there's so much going on around the world and we care about that and we want to try and fix that and solve that. That's who we are kind of as Americans um, and as human beings, we want to help. But at the end of the day, too you know, we are very limited and we don't really know kind of what's going on and what what did cause that and how did it happen and how do we prevent it? Or is it even preventable? Or is this just the way of the world? Right. Uh, to kind of tie into that, I've kind of felt, I've thought of, had this thought that, you know, we have this, I think maybe even my own um, life has m- left me feeling like things have gotten chaotic as I've gotten older, but I'm wondering are we just more aware of the chaos out there? Like, has this all has this crazy shit always been happening, and we just didn't know about it because communication was slow and whatnot, and you didn't really pick up on all the insanity and um, kind of paradoxically, you know, it's like mass media and like you're saying, you know, someone can hop on a flight and go around the globe. It's like those tools are available. Like, without that kind of without the mass media, we don't have terrorism. It's not an effective strategy, right? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I, I think that we are sort of um, a little bit older and wiser, and we have um, the, the mask has sort of been pulled off in some ways. I think when we were younger, you know, our blinders were on. We were, we were only aware of what we kind of saw. Um, it was kind of pre-internet age in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that as we had more access to information, as we had more world experience, as we met people from different walks of life, I do think that my perspective has changed, and I've realized that there are good people out there, sure, but there's a lot of bad people as well. You know, there's a lot of people with intentions that you have to kind of question. So I become a little more skeptical initially when I might, um, you know, meet somebody or whenever I get involved in an organization or whatever, because I've had those experiences. Um, I think we were optimistic and young and naive in some ways and idealistic, which is a good thing, you know, but I think we've sort of lost our innocence, if you will, um, as we've as we've kind of dealt with uh, the real world. And, and it's infor- unfortunate, but I, again, I don't want to be too dark and gloomy. I think there's a lot of good things happening as well. It's just um, we know we know more of the bad things that are going on because we have information that we didn't have before. But one, one point on that, too, I read this great book on the city of Jerusalem. There's a biography of the city of Jerusalem, and it went over like 6,000 years of history. And just reading about uh, the constant war, famine, you know, starvation, political power plays, you know, genocide, complete butchery that happened in that city after every conqueror came in from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, you name it. 
to see sort of that history of that place and to still see the city standing uh, and making it through that, it really does give you perspective on how life was really hard for most of human history. So we're in a better place. I just think we still have some ways to go. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I think that that kind of perspective is important. I think we lack that in America. And I think Europe has Europe and definitely, certainly the Middle East, obviously, because of, you know, continued civilization there for, you know, going back to the ancient Sumerians and probably before that. Uh, like there's a consistency. There's there's more of a understanding, I think, a better understanding of what human nature is and just in conflict and the dangers that arise that I think we in America don't have. I think we have this very like nouveau uh, view of the world because, you know, obviously this is, you know, this is, we haven't lived here for more than, you know, 300 plus years, right? 400 plus years, something like that. We don't have that same cultural legacy stretching back for thousands of years. Right. No, I think you're exactly right. The And I've kind of read a lot more of European history over the years. I've really gotten into it and having traveled a little bit there and kind of, you know, visited different places. I wanted to know about the history and, and the people, but just, you know, taking it back to the, the early days, the, it was, you know, nonstop, again, wars, fighting, empires rising and falling, religious wars that were brutal, um, you know, going up until even in, in, you know, certain places in the 19th century, even the 20th century in Ireland, places like that. So there's a lot of um, conflict, religious conflict, ethnic conflict, um, genocide. I mean, just unbelievable violence that occurred, unbelievable human uh, cruelty, torture, the Inquisition, plus natural disasters and, and things like the bubonic plague of the, I guess, the 1300s, things like that, um, that the Europeans have been to that gives them probably a more realistic and even fatalistic view of the world. Um, but America really is a, is a special place in some ways because of that optimism. But we also are young. We also haven't had quite those experiences. We have had um, slavery. We've had uh, the Civil War. We've, you know, we've had world wars. We've seen, you know, been a big part of the 20th century where more people died in that century um, than than any century before due to warfare. And, and uh, the technology is, is partly to blame for that. So, you know, I think that we still have this sense of optimism. And I think that's a good thing. But I think we really need to do a better job of knowing our history, understanding it and remembering it. And I think you're, that definitely ties back into this idea of kind of a positive, you know, Pro, you know what positive essentially of you know we're progressing towards something and you know from the enlightenment on and you know a lot of the postmodern thinkers of the strains of thought that I find most fascinating you know that and that also that European perspective of you know the enlightenment reason technology all these things led to this syst systematic killing of more people than ever so I don't know it's kind of it's that double-edged sword again yeah, I think, you know, I would take issue with some of that, that, that point. I do think that, um, that the human will to kill was there. I think the technological means uh, made it easier. But I also think a lot of the regimes that did that, um, if you look at, you know, the communist, you know, China, the, the Russians, uh, Pol Pot and Cambodia, I mean, the big mass killers tended to be, you know, godless communists. It's kind of a phrase that, you know, was used kind of in the 50s, but truly... Um, there's a historian and his name is escaping me right now, but he has a great history of the 20th century. And he kind of talks about um, sort of the, the strands within those different ideologies um, 
that were common that helped to lead to that mass murder and chaos. And what he, what he talks about um, is just that it was always putting the good of the group ahead of the individual, the individual rights, individual freedom. So he really talks about um, what makes the West special and unique is the value on the individual, um, not to say at the expense of the community, but the one thing all of those regimes had in common, the Soviet regime that killed un uncounted millions, I mean, 60, 70, 80 million people, Pol Pot in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, um, the Chinese under Mao. And we're talking tens of millions of their own people killed. The one common theme really was that all of this was in, in for the good of the state. It was for the good of some progressive future. Some, right. some. So again, not to say that that that's that's the only explanation, but just that that ideology had a lot to do with it when combined with the technological technological advances that were there. Interesting. Uh, I've actually been delving into a lot of. I've been researching communism, socialism, uh, different strains of, of that. It's really interesting. One kind of, the probably the most interesting point that I've come across in reading these opinions and whatnot is going to be that this idea that a lot, you know, whenever communism is criticized by, you know, particularly from, um, from the capitalist perspective, it's like communism is always at fault for whatever goes wrong. And that same criticism is never applied to capitalism in the same light, which I think is, there sort of rings true, right? Not to absolve whatever terrible things have. De I mean, those things have definitely happened. I'm not going to deny that. And a lot of, in a lot of people, a lot of the communists do. They, you know, they try to write off a lot of the mass murder and such as as necessary or, you know, a good. I'm trying to negotiate that and see, you know, what my beliefs are. Because I feel like I've got to I've got to come at it from the top down of like what what how do I determine what is meaningful what is true, and then I you know once I figure out those kind of structural um, you know paradigms then I can build my political political and economic philosophy. Sure. But you know here I am at 34 and I'm still trying to negotiate um, what what objective reality is and these like. Well, it's good to be asking questions. I I think that you know anytime. Anybody gets too stuck in an ideology and in one way of thinking, you know, it does sort of prevent you from being open to other ideas. And I think in my 20s, I was probably more stridently uh, ideological, if you will. I think that, you know, I've grown too in just with with real experience, experience working with politicians, working with political parties, seeing how government works behind the scenes, seeing how the media works behind the scenes, really seeing the underbelly of all of that. Um, you know, I think that it that my view is almost has become almost less political and ideological and more kind of a view of human nature and kind of a view of what people with power do. And it's actually kind of made me more sort of uh, rationally kind of libertarian leaning because I really just fear when um, when a small group of people has too much power, whether right. it is in religion or politics or business or, but you know, what I've observed is that unfortunately a lot of the people who do seek power want it for the wrong reason, right? They're not necessarily seeking power uh, to to do good or to give us more freedom back or to help people. A lot of people just want power for the sake of power. And those are the people that I think that we really need to sort of band together to say we don't want them in office because there are liberals who are um, who are good people who are acting, uh, I think, for the good for the common good. And they may differ with me on some ideas on how to get there. Um, but there are also good people on the right. And I think that that's the one thing we should come together on is to say we don't want these kind of people in power. We don't want psychopaths, sociopaths, and other people who want power for the sake of power to hurt people. Right. 
I would say, and I think a lot of the thought that I'm I'm into, um, for lack of a better term, would say that institutions create these people. These people, you know what I mean? It's not an indiv- It's not an individual that you can kill to stop fanatics, right? Fanatical leaders. They're gonna. I think the institutions themselves create these people. Hmm. Well, I, 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 I mean, to a degree. Yeah, I could see some of that. I, I think certainly having institutions that have either you know too much power, have certain types of power, the ability to kill, for example, that that's always you know through the state, that's always going to be a troubling aspect. It's always going to be there. So, um, you know. I think I think you're you're right in the sense that it's not enough to put you know good people in power. We have to limit what those in government can and can't do, right? We have to put limits on them. But there there do have to be probably institutional constraints on on all people, whether they're good, they're bad, or indifferent. Um, you know, I I think that's a harder thing than trying to identify the individuals that should not be in those offices and trying to keep them out. Right. That's something that I feel a little bit more a little bit able to change here. You know, in the next few decades of my life and my career. That's one thing that concerns me about capitalism is, you know, continually funneling power into smaller and smaller groups. The centralization of capital and those people basically running the government, which I feel like we're at that stage. It's like the Congress, like what's the median income for Congress or median in wealth or whatnot? It's like the 1% of our country. It's like you have to be that wealthy to even become a senator or a rep you know obviously house of reps you're not as rich typically but you know what i mean it's like you have to be wealthy to even be considered for these powerful positions and how do you how does how do we check that what's the you know what mechanism do we have to prevent that no it's it's a good question and look i think the i think if you're in Congress, you get paid like $175,000 a year, which is already much higher than most Americans make. It's it's well above that. Um, the kind of what you're getting to, the net wealth of members of Congress is much higher than the average American, absolutely, especially in the Senate more than the House. Um, it, it And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think those with the means who've kind of, you know, made their money, made their millions, if you will, um, start to look for things like public policy get into. They have the, the ability to run a campaign, sometimes to self-fund. Um, and that becomes very attractive to the political parties. So if you talk to the Democrats or the Republicans that kind of run the various arms of the party who recruit candidates, one of the things they look at is, can you pay for it yourself? And they right. really like self-funders. And what they'll do is they'll give those uh, wealthy individuals who can self-fund their campaigns support endorsements. They'll introduce them to other donors to sort of uh, double down because if, if you know congressman or con- congressional candidate you know joe smith can put in a million dollars of his own the nrcc the national republican congressional committee or the the democratic arm similarly is more likely to put money into that race so it does kind of create this um, self-fulfilling pr- prophecy um, i think that the way to combat it the only way to combat it really is to get enough people within a district enough people um, who who bring their hundred dollars to be able to compete with those million dollars? And you know, it, it's it's easy to say. I think the one thing though for for your listeners to kind of think about, you know, if money were the only determinant, then the president uh, right now would probably be Jeb Bush, because he raised and spent like a hundred and fifty million dollars. Right. Donald Trump actually <laughs> spent far less um, in the primary and the general. Didn't do anything that political consultants told him to do. Got a ton of free media. Um, and show that 
that a candidate who is is unique, certainly a celebrity candidate, a candidate that has kind of a built-in name ID, can actually get away with not raising and spending the kind of traditional right. dollars. But I think that still reinforces my point about, you know, there, this the system is going to create these people, the people that tend to fall into these roles and wealth and whatnot, they are the ones that, you know what I mean? Like there's this kind of, <laughs> I'm trying to think how to say this. Um, I don't know, there's a tendency for, the, for those people, you know, it's not normal everyday Joes that are getting into these positions, you know what I mean? And a lot of yeah. cutthroat, like a Donald Trump, yeah, he didn't have the political backing necessarily, but he had something better. He had his television show, sure. The Apprentice, where he's, you know, like in the minds of the average American, the zeitgeist is, oh, like Donald Trump, oh, he's a he's a smart businessman, you know right. what I mean? I could, that's, I think that's what sold him was the, ironically, this television show. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right. I think, and, and he is a very unique uh, political candidate, character in our history and that sort of thing, as was Barack Obama. I think um, they were not traditional uh, in how they got to power. They're not. I mean, it, we're going to be able to write tons of research case studies, you know, all sorts of dissertations on, on those individuals and how they changed politics from, in, from 2008 until 2020 or beyond. Um, but kind of back to your point more specifically, you know, I, I don't see a lot of regular Joes running for office for Congress in particular, um, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe it's because they don't think they can win. Maybe, you know, the money and the support does go to these sort of more either professional politicians who are state legislators or mayors or city councilmen or whatever. Um, but it also may just be that they're so busy trying to live their lives, trying to stay above water, trying to you know, take care of their family, that they, politics is kind of the, the furthest thing from their mind. But I hope that more people do run. I think that, you know, despite all of the hurdles and the difficulties, I actually think that when somebody who is a good candidate runs, that sometimes the money will come to them if there's a, the right opportunity. Um, but you've got to be willing to kind of step into the fray. And I've yeah. seen some crazy things happen in politics. I mean, I think that still goes back to this point of like, the system is set against the average person running because they don't have the financial resources, they don't have the time resources. And I know you're you're definitely probably opposed to public campaign funding. But we have, you know, things like Citizens United. I know like am I am I wrong and mis am I misremembering that you kind of support that decision? Yeah, I, I think I think what Citizens United allowed uh to happen is that sure there's going to be like at the at the end of the day, the money's going to be in politics. That's really kind of my belief is that it's going to find the outlet that it wants to go to. It's either going to be in the candidates and the parties and PACs or super PACs. As long as there is um, openness about it, as long as people that are giving, uh, like I think it's two hundred and fifty dollars or more, you know, it, it is public information. So if you're giving to a super PAC, your your name is on the line. People know that. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily that money. Is, de is a determining factor, you know, in our elections. I do think it plays a huge role, but we also spend billions of dollars on all sorts of other things. Right. Um, I think now more than ever, too, money plays sort of a, a less important role than it did. Um, you're seeing that, you know, across the country. You're seeing, I've seen this happen in Texas where folks have run statewide and spent just millions of dollars multiple times and still lost to a candidate. And so it, it's just a little more complicated, I think, than that. So for me, Citizen, Citizens United is not something that, I think is going to fix the problem or sort of, um, you know, be a, be a silver bullet. And I really don't think there's a silver, silver, silver bullet out there anywhere. 
Um, but it's not the biggest problem that I would like to see solved. I, I really look and see the biggest problems we face are public policy problems. And the reason that people don't want to tackle those is because they're politically so difficult. The money, right? It's not, all right, the New York Yankees spend the most every year on their roster, but they don't always win the World Series, right? Yeah, I mean, but they're in the conversation every year. So while it's not, it's not the determining factor, obviously there's there's a lot of variables involved, but it's definitely going to put you, you know, it's going to give you that quite a bit. You know what I mean? It's it's pretty impactful. It's pretty significant. And I think just that in itself, like the upper class are the only ones that have the ability to do this. So that's what scares me about this money in politics. I think it really undermines our democracy, to be quite honest. And that's what I see. You know, I mean, and it seems to be um, fulfilling itself, um, I think, most blatantly with in the Trump era, um, for example, like Rex Tillerson being Secretary of State. I mean, that's just, to me, that is blatant crony, cronyism, and it just blows my mind. And of course, now this is like I'm a radical leftist <laughs> when I say this kind of stuff. But to me, I don't know, it just blows my mind. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that it's not that different from others who served in the cabinet before uh, other wealthy people, people who are either very successful in business or in the right place at the right time. Um I mean, Cheney, of course. Sure. I mean, but, probably most recently. Sure. But even in the Obama administration, I mean, he, he got more money from Wall Street than any presidential candidate in history. You know, uh, he had Tim Geithner on as his treasury, treasury secretary. So there was a lot of that going on. I think that it's. But I, th- I thought he was a socialist. Geithner? <laughs> no, no. I'm talking about Obama. Oh, Obama. Yeah. Well, maybe not once he got into office like a lot of these guys. Um, but But I think that. That, that issue of, of people who have a lot of money or people who are you know, big bankers or whatever going to be treasury secretary or that sort of thing, that's not really that new. Um, to me, sure, it's it can be troubling, but it, it, at the end of the day, the only thing that I'm really focused on is the, the policy outcomes, whether they're making good decisions or bad decisions, whether they're being corrupt and doing things that serve their own interests and the interests of their industry, or they're trying to act for the good of the country. Because you could really make the case for for anybody from any line of work that, well, you only want to be in Congress to affect your business or to right. affect your friends. Like you can find a way to do that. If you're an artist and you run and you get elected, well, you just want more money for the national endowment for the art. Like, so I, to me, that's, that's less, um, less compelling of an argument, but I, but I do think it's some of the blatant corruption that we've seen. Um, and some of the, the people that have put in high positions, uh, that do, that they, they do concern me. And right. I, and that's happened, I think with, who Hillary would have put in and who Trump has put in. Uh, so I'm really looking at, you know, what are they going to do? But the 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 bigger problems, I think, are some of the other things that are out there in the news right now about, you know, Jared Kushner and whether he was, you know, doing things on behalf of the Russians. There's a lot of those unanswered questions right. that trouble me far more than Rex Tillerson being Secretary of State. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with that. But I'm I, to me, it's the system. Like, we need to fix the systemic problems that are going to just keep reproducing the same situations over and over again and that's what i think happens is there's you're born into a particular situation and your reality is based on that particular experience so i find it very difficult to have a lot of faith in whether it be a democrat or republican you know a millionaire having my best interest at heart so i want a more democratic voice as far as people from different walks of life 
um, in our government because I think that's a better solution than picking from these, you know, this certain class of, of wealthy folks. Yeah, one thing I've tried, one argument that I've tried to make to my friends on the left in particular with them being out of power with uh, people being frustrated by who the president is or that Republicans have all this power is I really try to encourage them to support the idea of federalism and, and local control, right? So taking power from Washington, D.C., putting it in the hands of state capitals and local communities. So, for example, you know, if you're concerned about your day to day life, you're concerned about, um, you know, what you how government affects you. Then, then you should support taking power out of D.C. so that whoever wins the next election in, in Washington matters less than who wins the next election in, in uh, Travis County or in Austin or in Texas. You know, and that's something that I think that is starting to gain a little traction, especially with folks in places like California and New York State, Washington, Oregon, places that are very blue that did not go for Trump um, and, and who feel like they're out of power. Well, this is another reason for you to join me in supporting taking money out of Washington, taking power out of Washington putting it back into, into communities. I right. think that's the one place to really get at what you're talking about within our current system of uh, democratic capitalism. Right. I mean, to, it's like, yes, I voted for Hillary, but I held my nose. I don't think that Hillary Clinton represents anything close <laughs> to what I believe. Um, I see her as, I mean, I know on on the right, she's, you know, socialist, what, whatever. To me, she's a center-right, basically just a Republican light. And, you know, I mean, going back to the Clinton administration, he's as complicit as Reagan or Bush or any of the other politicians that we've had in 1996 deregulating the telecom, you know, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, um, repealing Glass-Steagall. Um, I feel like there's something else I'm totally missing. Well, he signed uh, welfare reform, which conservatives are very happy about. Right, um, e exactly. So this guy's like a centrist, you know. There is no left. I mean, we have Bernie Sanders. Even Bernie Sanders, like in the European context, is kind of a centrist, maybe center-left to, to a small degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think th that's a valid point. I think that there's, you know, that Americans in general um, are more of a center-right kind of populist and electorate. I think in Europe, you do see more parties on the left, on the far left, even the for example, in France and Germany and places like that, the conservative parties are not that conservative. I mean, they're right. nowhere like the Republican Party in Texas, certainly. Um, but that that is somewhat of a makeup of, of the populace. You know, one of the things that I think that the left is going to struggle with over the next four years uh, really is the problem um, that Thomas Frank identified, uh, which I think he didn't necessarily get it right, but he wrote this book called What's the Matter with Kansas? And his basic argument was, you know, we have all these uh, middle class, you know, white voters, for example, um, who who might be kind of culturally conservative, but for pocketbook issues and fiscal issues, you know, they should be with us Democrats. That's kind of the argument that he right. made. And this was years ago. But this last election kind of showed that actually they don't feel that way. They don't identify with the Democrats. They don't identify with Hillary Clinton and probably not with Bernie Sanders either. But they did with Donald Trump. And it was on cultural issues and economic issues, which are often tied in together. But the Democrats are really going to have a, uh, a tough situation trying to figure out how do we go and get those voters back, especially working class, white voters without a college degree in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, where Trump won. And I think that um, what, what Thomas Frank and the left have to understand is that you know, the culture matters just as much as the economics uh, in our country to people. 
and the cultural sort of uh, zeitgeist on the left that bringing you know Hollywood liberals to come do fundraisers is probably a really bad idea. They really are going to have to go back to building the uh, working class Democratic Party, which is what the Republicans have been struggling to do as well. My fear is that we're going to get a you know a politics out of that that is much more uh, populist that leads to big government solutions as opposed to more free market solutions. So in some odd way, some on the left, you know, can probably be happy about some of the things that the president is pushing, like trade protectionism, right? You know, steel tariffs, those kinds of things that many of us on the right are very weary of. So, but I, but I do think the the left is going to have to figure out, um, you know, do we you know do we think that we can build and should build a really kind of more far left movement um, that can gain steam and win elections nationally, or are they going to have to come to the center? And that's that's a political question. But maybe for you, if you feel like, you know, would that be selling out? Would that be um, doing something that would lose your support, then folks like you may just stay home in the next election, which only leads to four more years of Donald Trump. Right. I think that actually swings back around to my kind of point about politicians and money. It's like there's a certain, I think the right has a very good advantage in that, you know, you can point to like, obviously with Hillary Clinton money, but let's go back to like John Edwards. It's like a prime example. It's like any any of the Democrats are like millionaires too. So... It's kind of like, oh, you're you're a millionaire, right? Even whatever, Bernie like Sanders that kind of like, yeah. It's uh, even had three houses, even Bernie. So it's kind of like you're discredited to some degree. It's easy to discredit you as you know, oh, you're oh, if you were really this, if you really believed in this, in the pe- power of the people, why you would just give this away, right? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that Franklin Roosevelt was a blue blood uh, Democrat. He was very wealthy. Came from a wealthy family. Uh, of course, had a relative that was a president preceding him, and but he was able to in the in the 30s uh, to connect with people, to connect with African American voters, to connect with uh, poor farmers, to connect with uh, poor people in general around the country through public policy that he supported. Now, I find that FDR, you know, to me, he grew government and he, he abused power as president, did all sorts of things that I don't like as a conservative. But from a political perspective, you know, there is a guy who was very wealthy who um, felt like he carried the mantle for the poor and middle class in this country. And they gave him the White House four times. So, you know, I don't know how important it is to voters that um, their elected officials actually have walked in their shoes and come from uh, that background. It it might be. But, you know, history suggests otherwise. Um, I really think people are most interested. What I, when I talk to people who are not political professionals or activists, they're just kind of normal voters across the board. A lot of them tell me, I don't really care what they do in their personal life, or I don't really care, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever. It's really, what are they trying to do to make my life better or worse? And I, I think that's ultimately where um, the voters are. So, I think that's kind of my point, though, is that if you are, if you are Franklin... <laughs> Roosevelt, you cannot identify with my experience of life, and how can you ever solve or represent any <laughs> solve any problems that I have or represent me when you don't? Your experience is so vastly different. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's a valid perspective. You know, I'm sure there are others like you that feel that way. But again, you know, he was elected multiple times. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson is another Democratic president um, who ended up being very wealthy, and some would say due to corruption and all sorts of other things. But LBJ grew up very poor in the Texas Hill Country. Um, you know, he was definitely uh, looked at, I think, as somewhat crude. And, you know, this kind of is Texan with a big cowboy hat coming in. And he was very vulgar. And 
Um, he didn't come from money and uh, eventually did do very well. But, you know, he and again, he's another president that I've studied closely that I'm, I'm not a big fan of, but I find fascinating. Uh, but LBJ also pursued policies that he felt really helped uh, that the poor and minorities and, and other folks um, who were struggling. Of course, you know, he had the war on poverty, which I would say didn't work out so well uh, for the poor. He also, of course, signed the Civil Rights Act um, 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 which he opposed a lot of that stuff in the 50s when he was a senator. But if you uh, look today, uh, African-American uh, voters in this country and activists uh, adore LBJ for that. They really appreciate his work on that, despite that history. So again, I think there's some evidence that most people um, have a, a different perspective, which is, you know, as long as you're pursuing policies that, that do help me, even if you can't necessarily... Uh, you, you didn't walk in my shoes and you can't necessarily have that experience to, to go back on. If you're fighting for me, then I'm going to give you that that office. And I think Donald Trump is just the latest example of that. The, the blue collar billionaire. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, William Jennings Bryan is definitely turning in his grave right now. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of funny, though, because, you know, I also to a degree, it's like I fear mob rule. But at the same time, it's like I feel like this is the, the new aristocracy is that's what it is i mean it's more fluid than you know feudal europe but you know there's a certain class of people i mean we still have rockefellers and what have you we still have people that have that old money that are still running <laughs> the government and have been for hundreds of years so i i don't know it's it gives me pause i'm very nervous about both both ends of the spectrum to be honest sure no i think i think that that's kind of been the history of of humankind and, and government and power is that you know there there always is an elite that rises and tries to maintain its power um i spent some time in graduate school reading aristotle's writings on politics and didn't really understand them too well until i had a really great professor who said okay you know you you idiots get it together here this is what he's saying and it really the thing that i took away that i found kind of most fascinating was when he talked about uh kind of the the, the small d democrats like the mob or the people uh, he talked about the aristocracy and the idea of a king or a monarchy right so you have these competing um factions and he really thought that each of them had uh shared interests within their group so the mob uh the people uh, the demos you know they really uh had shared interest they were the many then you had the aristocracy. They were the few. They were typically elite. They were higher educated, more money, that sort of thing. And then you had the king who could often become a tyrant. And so what he kind of talked about was, um, you know, of course, this is hundreds of years before um, our system of government was created, but I think it had a huge impact on our founding fathers intellectually. But he talked about how they need to balance each other and how they're always competing among these factions. They're, they're fighting for power. They're fighting for influence. And you really do need a balance of all those things. And, um, you know, the one thing that I would sort of uh, disagree with the, the brilliant uh, philosopher and uh, political scientist Aristotle on is that I don't think that, you know, the people that you can really define the people in such a um, in, in such a kind of simple, straightforward way that's homogenous. I really think there's so much individuality within the people. There's so much individuality within the aristocracy, political opinions, religious views what motivates them. There's different levels of aristocracy. Um, I think kings are more similar than not because they're usually people that want total power. But I, I think that's just kind of the nature of human nature. It's the nature of uh, any government that you set up. And you're always going to have those competing factions in addition to ideological battles, religious battles, 
um, regional and sectional interests that are fighting for power and influence. So I think it's really just kind of a, you know, we live in a world, even in our country, which is pretty stable, but a world uh, politically and economically that's somewhat chaotic. And it's all these different people kind of vying for influence. And so as long as they're balancing each other out in a healthy way, um, we're better off than if one gets to be too powerful. So going back to your point, I fear the mob, I fear the aristocracy, and I fear the tyrant. Well, it's, you know, when you get into Aristotle, so your <laughs> eyes glaze over. And, right. Um, but no, I, I think the the founding fathers, I mean, the kind of the idea, of, you know, Madison had about this is very, I mean, he must have drawn from from that, um, as did many of the other founding fathers. But I think that's what kind of makes our system um, a good one. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think that we should, you know, worship these founding fathers and say they had it 100% right. They had their own battles. They had their own factions. They had their own ideological differences. You know, Patrick Henry, you know, was kind of one of my favorite because he was kind of way out there saying, no, we need more liberty. This federal government's too big. You know, that was at the founding. Um, he thought when the Federalists got into power, they went too far. And um, he eventually, I guess, you know, uh, came around on some things. But there is no perfect system. And I think that, you know, just trying to get by day to di day, to day with our lives and, and you know, uh, take care of our families and just kind of make a living is hard enough. And so, you know, I think we can all participate uh, a little bit to try and make things a little better and we can act collectively, you know, as a country to try and do things on the national stage. But, you know, I've seen this time and time again, we are much more impactful at our, in our local communities. I definitely agree with that. And I, I definitely share your disdain for hierarchy and, and those kind of systems because that's where the oppression occurs is when is whenever you have hierarchy so yes i mean it's like i definitely agree as far as i think state capitalism is the worst system that you could ever have would be state capitalism and we're slightly better off in, in a market system uh some wouldn't agree with me there but i don't know i think there's definite reforms that we really really need to make we need more diversity of opinion in politics we need more voices out there we need broader perspectives um, and I think the political system that we have set up and entrenched really discourages diversity of ideas, and it's breaking it down to these two parties that are, you know, kind of, you know, different facets of the same kind of capitalist central party. It's like Nancy Pelosi. Oh, you know, we're kind of like she was like some college student was like giving her the business, and she was like, oh, well, that's it's the best capitalism's the best we've got. I mean, and that's that's the left. That's who we, we have. We have. We have fucking Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> We've got Nancy and God, who Harry Reid. Like these are <laughs> Chuck Schumer now. Is the oh yeah, Chuck. Democrat. I, yeah, that's who. Sorry. No, I. Yeah, I meant to say old, good old, good old Chuck, weepy Chuck. One of the most troubling things for me is that I can sit here and debate all day long ideas and you know have fun with it and learn from people and 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 pe passionate people that have far different views than I do. What troubles me is the tribalism. The blind loyalty to party. Um, you know, I am not one who subscribes to the idea that you should support every single uh, Republican or Democrat on the ballot because you're a Republican or Democrat. I think right. you have to think for yourself. Um, parties are helpful in that they kind of give you an idea of what a slate of candidates might be running on. Um, but but people can just run as a Republican and be a lifelong Democrat, as our president was. I mean, he gave thousands and thousands of dollars to Democrats his entire life. He was a Reform Party uh, activist. He was a Republican. He was a Democrat. He was all over the place. Um, you know, I think that the parties often are um, a little too focused on loyalty and on, 
you know, battling the other party than they are on what's good for the country. What's and also what, you know, what actually uh, is about the ideas, who is about the ideas, who is about fighting for the policy positions that we support. So I was really troubled by that within, within the party that I belong to, the Republican Party. You know, I really saw a lot of people who said, you know, you just need to get on board. This is the nominee. I know all <laughs> these things are true. And I was kind of pulling my hair out saying, but guys, you know, you realize all of these policy positions are contrary to our platform. You <laughs> right. realize he gave all this money to Democrat. You realize, you know, there are questions about character and that sort of thing. And I think now with all of the, the news that's going on with um, all the investigations, all of the Russia stuff, I think it's really troubling. And I'm just seeing a lot of good people and friends and colleagues burying their heads in the sand saying, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, so. I, I actually wanted to ask you to give me some perspective because I'm... I'm so like the like you're saying these media messages and the opinions are so tribalized. And it's like I've got you know the left wing people on Twitter, are you know banging the drum about let's impeach him. There's corrupt you know every day every day. And then the right wing people are like, oh no, it's yeah, it's whatever. So and so did the same thing, or you know what I mean? They're kind of it's kind of that war of ideas. So it's like I, you know, I'm distrustful of the mainstream media. Sure. I mean, the New York Times was all about going to Iraq and, you know, they've been complicit in in whatever over the years. So it's like I'm distrustful of that, too. Like, absolutely, there is some bullshit going on. Right. Like, I can definitely like I can see that. But it's kind of like, who do who do we turn to? Who are the gatekeepers of the truth or, you know, whatever? Put that in quotations right. if you want. Like, <laughs> right. This is why the distrust of institutions is at such a. A high level. I mean, the distrust of the FBI, distrust of the Republicans and the Democrats, the distrust of government in general, of the media. Um, you know, it's hard to discern truth from fiction. It's hard to to really be able to to know who you can trust and who's just parroting a line. You know, what I try and do is wait and see a little bit, let things sort of uh, develop. I try and read everything I can. I read different perspectives. Um, I'll watch Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. I'll watch other shows on MSNBC. I'll turn it over to Fox and see what Sean Hannity is going to say. I'll read the New York Times and the Washington Post, but I also read blogs. And I try, I just try and get a sense of what's out there and, and try and keep an open uh, mind and think critically for myself about what likely is to have happened and, and what's conjecture and what's rumor and then what's right. not, right? And so I don't know, you know, who can you trust? I mean, as far as political figures, people that have been consistent in their careers, people that have never been caught lying or cheating, people that tell the truth as they see it, if, even if it gets them in trouble. Uh, and the same with journalists. You know, if there are individual journalists that you've read that, you know, and I know some of these folks, too. There are certain ones that I trust that I know that they're not just full of a bias or they're not just, you know, trying to hurt, you know, this party or that party. But they are actually trying to get to the truth. So I try and seek out those guys. Um, but I think in general, people are too quick to comment and too quick to develop an opinion. Give it time. Let it right. play out and see. It's it's too early uh, to impeach the president. There has to be actual evidence of you know high crimes and misdemeanors, which Congress sort of gets to define. But let's see where this investigation goes. I do think right. that Bob Mueller is a respected guy across party lines in Washington, the former FBI director. I don't think I've seen anybody challenge his credibility Everybody you talk to, everybody that the media interview says, this guy uh, is going to do what he thinks is right. And so that's not 100%, but I think that's a good indication that that's not just some hack up there. Right. But as far could you give me a scale? Like, what's your, on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerning do you find this whole Russian collusion or, you know, these accusations and, and whatnot? Like, what, where are you at? What's your threshold at? So, 
in graduate school, I studied uh, international affairs and American foreign policy, and, and I had a lot of professors that worked for Ronald Reagan in the 80s in his national security apparatus. And they were experts in Soviet intelligence and active measures and propaganda. And so these guys taught us, you know, what to look for in terms of uh, information operations, in terms of propaganda, political warfare, um, you name it. And what I see is that the the Russians who, you know, are basically still led by a former KGB agent, that the Russians certainly were trying to influence the election, that they certainly um, had some success getting people to carry their water, carry their message, people that are in high levels uh, of the Trump campaign. Uh, and now are in high levels in government. When when I see the National Security Advisor of the United States uh, being uh, someone like General Michael Flynn, who was on the payroll of Russia Today, which is a Kremlin-controlled media outlet, and, and General Flynn also on the, being on the payroll of Erdogan in Turkey, uh, that's troubling, because that is a specific thing that happened. Uh, he was on the payroll uh, for speeches or for influence, for lobbying. He didn't register as a federal agent until he, or yeah, an agent of a federal government, of a, a foreign entity until he had to, until it was found out. That's really, that's either a lack of judgment on the president's part in his team uh, or a huge oversight or something more sinister. So let's just start there. And then you look at, it's not just one person, right? It's right. Jared Kushner, it's, uh, it's Carter Page, it's Roger Stone, it's Paul Manafort, who was Trump's campaign chairman and manager. Paul Manafort was on the payroll of uh, the pro-Putin, pro-Russia, uh, Ukrainian former president. He was basically, uh, Paul Manafort was doing work for the pro-Putin people in Ukraine. And so you're telling me that doesn't have any influence on our government, on our president, as to how we uh, view what's happening in Ukraine or in Russia? So I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself and say, okay, we know that there was collusion and we know that there was something, you know, there's a lot of people out there saying, we know this, we know that, therefore it should lead to this. Right. I'm saying, let's wait and see. Let's let the investigation play out. Um, but I'm very troubled on a scale to one to 10. I would say I am an eight. I think oh, wow. there's enough there. There's, there's lots of smoke or there's smoke, there's fire. But I don't even know that, like, I don't, I don't know that Donald Trump was the one who was orchestrating all of it, or he was the one that, that knew this was going on, or he was the one that organized. I really don't think that's likely kind of my sense of him. I think it's far more likely that there were a lot of people around him who were taken advantage of, who were duped, or who were just paid off to carry this influence. And so I think this, this is a Russian uh, active measures campaign to influence the election, but also to influence American foreign policy toward Russia. That To me, that's clear. Yeah. Um, I think, and I think that there is just, you know, lots of threads that have to be unwound before we can figure out what happened. I think I can, I can, that's a pretty measured uh, view of it. I think that's, that's a pretty wise approach. I can, I can get behind that. Um, but man, it's, it's crazy. I don't even, like I said, I don't even know what to think in this, in this hyper real uh, soup that we're in. <laughs> well, you know, one, one other observation that I, I like to make is that I also believe pretty strongly that the nature of the, information that's coming out and the way that it's coming out sounds and looks just like an operation by our intelligence agencies. I believe that individuals within the CIA and the FBI and the NSA are systematically putting out information um, step by step to build a narrative and to show that they have evidence of really troubling things. I think that a lot of the Trump inner circle was caught up in intelligence gathering um, that information is widespread in the intelligence communities. And I think that they are 
systematically putting information out there to say there's something weird here, guys. And they, they mm. are the ones who are putting this out there. And that it's not haphazard, that it's actually an information operation, that it's essentially intelligence agents kind of acting either in coordination or just sort of with smoke signals saying, I'm going to release this, and then two days later, that's going to come out. Because I think there's so much information out there that they've got about meetings and about secret communications between that Kushner wanted to set up with the Russians through the ambassador. There's so much of it that I think that when when it's released in that way, like every two days there's a new headline, and you don't get the whole story, you get the headline. Like, right. you know, someone high up in the Trump campaign, you know, part of the FBI investigation, and you're like, well, who's that? For two days, the cable news shows talk about it, and then two days later, they say it's Jared Kushner, right? And then two days later, they're going to say, well, here's some details of that, the secret communications. And then right. two days later, here's an email that he actually sent, or here's something that and here's details on the meeting itself. So I, I really think there's a there's an operation going uh, within our government to get information out there to say there's something really bad going on. Yeah. I mean, I it, there's got to be, like, there's some, I don't know what the severity is, but there's just too much out there for there not to be, you know, something. <laughs> I don't know what the legalities are. I don't know how that exactly works. And to be honest... You know, if Trump were impeached, it's almost I'm almost somewhat like this is really damaging to the democracy. And obviously that's what Putin wants. But it's right. like if we do, I mean, I feel like the climate, there's going to be so much chaos. Right. <laughs> and that's what the danger is like. There's this unpredictableness. I, I've you know, I've been working and volunteering in politics, I guess, since about 2000. So maybe 17 years. I've never seen it like we've been through some pretty tumultuous times. We've seen a lot of tension. We've seen a lot of activity left, right, center. I haven't quite seen it like this where people are so angry and so frustrated and calling each other names, defriending each other on Facebook over political disputes. I mean, even within my own friend network, you know, extended family, there's some pretty heated conversations that go on. And I really am just trying to sit there and, and, you know, figure it out and have, you know, express my opinions in a respectful manner, listen to what other people have to say. That is just not the popular thing right now. I mean, people are yelling at each other and people are in the streets and have been in the streets on the left and, and on the right. Trump supporters, you know, Trump opponents. Um, we've just had this guy elected to Congress who physically assaulted a reporter. Oh, he had the body slam. Beat him, you know, apparently punched him, according to a Fox News reporter. Oh, wow. He punched him a few times. I mean, and the guy, you know, got elected. So, yes, we can blame the parties and we can blame the members of Congress, but I also think the people have uh, some of the responsibility here that if we keep you know, sending the same people uh, to Congress, if we keep sending the same people to state legislatures, then we also bear some of that responsibility. Absolutely. But I mean, I just feel like the regular, the average person is so <laughs> just an afterthought in our, in our society. It's just, we're so lulled by, you know, and especially now with... Facebook, Twitter, binging shows. It's just like, it's really, it's like the matrix. It is. To be honest. I mean, that's the best metaphor that I can put up with is, you know, people just retreat (laughs) to their, into their internal world rather than deal, get out there and go vote or be active or what have you. It's like, my vision is like, you know, we had, we had the women's march and whatnot, but that's, that's been what they had the March for Science not long ago. But I'm like, we need to be out in the streets every month at, 
at minimum, if you really want to create change, you know, and I'm talking about the left here, it's like, you need to be out there every fucking weekend on the streets. That's how you're going to make, you know, shake things up. You can't just have one march and then it's like, I feel like the resistance movement has kind of, it's attenuated to some degree since the beginning of the election or uh, after the election, sorry. Well, and, and, you know, look, having gone through this with the Tea Party movement, you know, you do have to be strategic with how you spend your time and your resources. And, you know, you have a lot of people who are new to politics with this new indivisible resistance movement, whatever you want to call it, that's mostly on the left. Um, you do have a lot of people who are new to politics. So you don't want them to be, you know, too burned out. You kind of want to give them some little victories. You want to keep them motivated so that they will continue to go out there because otherwise they will go home and say, a plague on both your houses, you know, and, and they'll go back into the matrix. And that's not good for democracy either. We need somebody to be a check on um, on the party in power. We need somebody to be a check, especially when one party controls all levers of government, even though I, I agree with, you know, <laughs> the Republicans far more than I do the Democrats. I want that healthy opposition uh, that devil's advocate. I want people to make the case so that we can. So we have to argue our case. We have to be better at it. Um, so you know, I, I do think that, you know, we're a long way from elections. You know, it's not until, you know, the spring of 2018 when we have primaries and the generals in the fall. But there's a lot of work you can do to to make it about issues, to talk about ideas. And I think, you know, the left really is going to have to make sure they tamp down any anything that looks violent or anything that looks offensive to, to the, the voters, especially the Trump voters, again, that in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, that voted for Barack Obama twice and then voted for Donald Trump. That's really their audience. It's really not, you know, conservatives like me, you know, it, it's really Trump voters. They really have to appeal. So they can't, you know, they really can't offend them. They can't insult them. They can't. And it's funny because, you know, when the left does insult the president, you know, when they insult Donald Trump or when they attack him. He just gets more popular. Right. Seems. His voters are just, you know, at least his base is 38% that just won't budge kind of stick with him. But, you know, Democrats also are going to have to find a way to peel off moderate Republicans or uh, independents uh, in big enough numbers and turn out their base in order to, to you know, to win in, in the fall. And of course, as a Republican, as a conservative, you know, I don't necessarily want that to happen. But, you know, I, I went through this in 2010 and we had a historic election. We elected 63 new conservative members to the House, six to the Senate, and it took a lot of work and time. And we had to build a movement that appealed to the average person we had to build a movement that's had good messaging and good talking points and good ideas and um that's very difficult to do a lot of people on the left think that bernie would have been the could have beat trump would have would have won the election i disagree hmm. <laughs> and the reason i disagree is because obviously the old i forget i I might have read this on a on a message board or something where they like the guy was like you really think the old communist was going to get was going to win the election and that's kind of my opinion. Wh- what are your thoughts on on good old Burn? God, trying to predict the election is hard <laughs> enough. Trying right. to predict, you know, trying to go back and explain it is hard. You're asking me to, you know, go back and and deal with this, you know, sort of alternate universe. Um, I think it's possible he could have he would have just had to uh, turn out more of the Democratic base in those in those swing states, and he would have had to deny Trump all those votes that went to Trump that were people that voted for Barack Obama twice. So I think, you know, Bernie's messages on trade and on inequality and on some of that stuff probably would have resonated better uh, than Hillary's messages, which I agree with you. I think she 
in the debate against Trump, I mean, I was watching it and she sounded like on guns and, and things like that. She sounded more toward the center than toward the left. And I was kind of blown away by that. Right. Um, I don't I think it was such a it was such a crazy election. It was very unique because it was like the epitome of an outsider versus the epitome of an insider. So with Bernie, you do get a little different factor. You get more of an outsider like Trump. Um, you do get a guy who is trying to, to talk to the middle class and to poor people. And I, I think he could have made it. I think it would have been closer. I don't think Hillary um, you know, got, would, have, would have gotten more votes than Bernie. I think Bernie actually would have gotten more votes than Hillary in, in the general. And I think he would have carried at least two or three more states. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I feel like there's definitely that segment of Trump voters that he would have appealed to more so, especially like that Rust Belt kind of people that you're talking about that have been displaced by globalization and whatnot. Um, but I don't, man, I don't, I don't know. I still think, I think Trump would have crushed him, to be honest. And especially Bernie, I don't know, Bernie against Trump. Trump is so media savvy. He's fucking, he fucking runs circles around everybody. Like, he's a, he's the Teflon Don Swear to God, that guy like just understands. <laughs> he understands just how to. I don't know. He's got some kind of media magic. He. I don't I know where he, he just learned it from, but man. But you know, nobody that I've ever seen in our history or read about in our history has been so uh, virulently against the media than Donald Trump. I think it's actually that he just takes them on and fights them and battles them and calls them out, and that his supporters just love it. Republicans love it, and he's the first guy to do that. John McCain and Mitt Romney never did that. Um, George W. Bush didn't do that. So I really think that that he's just so combative with the media that that's what his supporters want and like, and that's what you know his Republican uh, voters, who weren't sold on him until you know they realized many of them that it was either Hillary or, or Trump, and that a third party probably you know wasn't going to win. Now you know, full disclosure, I did not vote for Donald Trump, and I did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I did vote for an independent candidate, a conservative candidate that nobody's ever heard of. But, you know, that was that was kind of my principled stand, I guess. Um, but no, I, mean, I think I don't know. I don't know if Trump is brilliant with media or if he's just, you know, kind of a bully to them and his supporters love it and eat right. it up. And that's really all that there is to it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's just a savant. Like, I feel like anyone else's career would have been over years ago. Yeah. <laughs> as far as politics go. But he somehow, it's like, ah, eh, you, I grab him by the pussy, I, you know, whatever. It's like, he's fucking invincible. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe what happened in the election is just that so many people got so turned off by both candidates, um, you know, that the turnout was lower, which, which it was, you know, and they were just so disgusted, but that his people were just so much more motivated to vote for him than, than Hillary's right. was. Now, They're Trump, energized for sure. Now, Trump got a lot of, anti-Hillary voters. I, I talked to hundreds of them in Texas, you know, just so many people that said, I'm not really thrilled about him, but I'm going to vote against Hillary. And certainly Hillary got a lot of anti-Trump voters. Like myself, right? Sure. <laughs> so, and that's just, that's what elections are. My big just frustration with this election, you know, well, there's a lot, but the primaries, right? The primary voters gave us these candidates. <laughs> right. This was the best that the Republicans and the Democrats could do with the field that we had, I mean, and the Republicans had what sixteen, seventeen yeah, candidates. Yeah, some ridiculous number of people. You know, pick your guy or your gal, but there were some really impressive people as you know politicians, as governors, as business people, whatever. You know, but then again, would any of them have beaten Hillary Clinton? I don't know. Right. Yeah, I'm almost like looking looking back at a photograph of Jeb Bush with like 
you know, kind of wistfully. <laughs> Did you see the picture? Of <laughs> another him? fucking like another Bush. I don't, you know, I don't know. Is that better than Trump? There's this great photo of him this week. He was in the airport getting his shoes shined at some <laughs> airport. It was great. Good old Jeb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's look. It's easy to get you know very uh, negative and down in the dumps, and you know. And I you know it's funny because I'm happy about some of the things going on. I should be happy about other things, but I'm so worried about um, these other things that are sort of the big, big issues. But I want to get tax reform and I want to get the healthcare situation fixed because it is a mess. I've gotten dropped off my health insurance twice because of this. Um, there are other issues like that, regulations and even, you know, I'm pretty socially conservative generally. You know, there's some things there that I would like to see. So all of this. Uh, all of this stuff is a huge distraction for conservatives from the policies we actually want to see implemented. So we can go and say, hey, you should reelect us in two years because um, we're actually getting things done for the good of the country. And I think that, you know, this president and all the things that go with them are just a huge distraction. So, you know, there's I think there's very few people that are happy with the situation as it is. Right. But I, I don't know. I feel like the Republican Congress is the most happy because... <laughs> Trump will pretty much acquiesce to whatever they want. And it's like he talked about draining the swamp and all that, but he seems like he's bringing all the neocons out of the closet and that same agenda. It's like I I would have been willing to give Trump a chance if he had really been a true outsider, a truly independent guy that maybe had some policies that were going to be on the left and the right. And, you know, we can take the good with the bad. At least that's something. But to me, he's like just the grossest, you know, the worst inclinations of the conservative movement in America and, and the capitalist system, to be quite frank. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because, as again, as you introduced me as a free market guy. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a free market dude, guy. I've got <laughs> the gulag out back, man. You look very, you're looking strong, Brandon. You could put you to work. You have strong back. Strong back. You could be very good for party, you know. I, you know, I see, I see a guy that wants trade protectionism. You know, he wants to meddle in our trade policy. I see a guy that's, you know, doesn't fully understand economics and kind of the complexity of it, um, and how you have to kind of actually let markets work instead of allowing for crony capitalism. Um, You know, I see a guy that that wants to spend all this money on infrastructure, which you know maybe there are some crumbling bridges that need to be fixed, but it's not good economics to say if we do that that's going to lead to um you know more economic productivity you know there there's a lot of things that i see as a free market person that um kind of make me cringe whether it's rhetoric or policies and it's trickled down to texas as well like we're, we're going to pass this legislative session which wraps up tomorrow um kind of a buy american steel kind of uh thing so basically you know having uh things that are construction related to state property and state government right you know has to go first to american companies over international ones but you know that hurts the american consumer you know we have trade protectionist policies on things like sugar and and you know corn we have subsidies and and tariffs and protections and all sorts of uh meddling in the market which just distorts economics it distorts prices it uh, kills jobs. It, it doesn't allow for consumers to really benefit. So, you know, one of the things in our conversations over the years, we've had these conversations on economics. And one of the things that I think I've kind of failed to communicate effectively or to kind of acknowledge to you is that, you know, this country is not really a pure capitalist society, right? It's right. not actually a free market, um, you know, 
unfettered free market. And I can provide hundreds of examples of that through regulations or, or trade barriers or uh, subsidies or whatever. But I think, you know, my answers always fall back to those free market solutions. But I think the next step is, look, that's not what we have right now. And here's how I would fix that. Here's how we would make it better. Um, but I, again, I, I see, you know, a president that's kind of uh, making it up as he goes along. And I, and I hope that people in Congress who are good free market people, good kind of small L libertarians, uh, like Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, who I'm a big fan of, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky and others, will kind of step up and educate and say, this is why that policy would be bad for Americans, bad for consumers. Right. I think this kind of ties back into my whole argument about how money is and capitalism in many ways, and especially the collection of capital in these groups is it's inevitable in the system. And I think that it's, it works counter it's counterproductive in terms of maintaining a democracy because you're going to have rent seeking. It's I don't see a mechanism to keep rent seeking out of the political system. I mean, it seems like that's, all there is is there's there's no voice for the middle class it's just these you know it's like they'll kind of dress it up as oh you're going to benefit from blah 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 like paul paul ryan is talking about health care and whatnot and his plan is going to you know americans going to have freedom and choice and there's going to you know what i mean health care isn't to me isn't something that is necessarily a choice exactly it's more of like a tax it's not a government tax but it's a tax that you pay right essentially so whether I'm paying that to Aetna or whatever governmental entity, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter who I'm paying that to, right? Well, I mean, the well, health insurance and health care, I mean, obviously a huge topic we could talk about for a right. long time. But health insurance, the idea behind insurance is the idea of you pooling resources from lots of different people. Right. You know, and if something bad happens to somebody, to a family, that they, you know, get those benefits. And usually that's meant for catastrophic things, meant for unforeseen things that are big expenses. And part of the problem now is that nobody actually pays directly for our, our health care, right? It's all this third-party stuff. The health insurance right. companies have become bigger and bigger and more influential, and, and they write all the laws re regarding health insurance and health care. And so, yeah, we have the system where things probably should cost a third of what they do, Right. If we paid more out of pocket, if we didn't, you know, have to have, you know, um, insurance sort of paying everything because nobody knows what it actually costs right. unless it's you take so it distorted. out. Of your, yeah, unless you take it out of your pocket and pay for it. Um, but again, I think from from a broad perspective, like what I would be happy with is what in general with social safety nets, with programs like like Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, uh, kind of welfare, you know, chip. Um, all those things, food stamps. I really think that most conservatives would tell you, we want those programs to go to who they're supposed to go to. Right. We don't want there to be waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, if you are truly poor or truly uh, disabled or truly have issues, you know, and you and you can't help yourself, you know, we do want those services to go to you. Right. But we see systems that are totally um, they're going bankrupt. First of all, their social security system is set up like a Ponzi scheme, effectively. So we want to take care of people, but we want to take care of people in an efficient way and people who can't help themselves. And so I think there's actually a lot of agreement that things like um, health insurance, health care, especially for poor people, for people who are sick, that sort of thing, uh, who have pre-existing conditions, that there should be ways to take care of those people. I don't, 
I really think it's unfair when when the left says, "Oh, well, you conservatives literally just want you know people to die in the streets." That's right. I've not I mean... met anyone who believes that, <laughs> says that, feels that way. I mean, it, it's just what are what are the different solutions to getting us there to where people get the health care that they deserve, not just the health insurance, but the health care. And and what Paul Ryan's trying to do is say, look, we need to bring down the costs, and then maybe for certain people you get you still get a subsidy, right? You get like a voucher, you get something. Right help pay for that in the private market so it's complicated um but the current system is no is definitely not a good one i want to go back to something you said because it's what i've kind of been hammering on to some degree this this whole time is you said you said something about the insurance companies becoming so big and they write the laws and they you know what i mean and that's that's my issue is there is no check on this there's no check on this power we don't vote for this you know what I mean? But these are the only choices we have are these uh, corporate, polit- you know, corporate politicians like Hillary Clinton. You know, what's funny about that and what's ironic about the health insurance, health care debate is that, you know, the big health insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, pharma, the big association of pharmaceuticals in this country, they actually wrote Obamacare. I mean, the staffers, the lobbyists, they got together with the Hill staff, with Obama's White House, and they actually... Um, set all that up and they love the mandate because it means that people are forced to buy their product so they actually you know they actually made did pretty well except you know the whole the whole system was collapsing and you know certain regulations caused other issues here you know so it's it's a mess but ironically you know the lobby for for repealing obamacare truly is grassroots conservatives republicans small business people um Yes, it's supported by and funded by the parties and the special interests that are ideological, the free market world. But like, there's not an industry that's really saying we need to repeal Obamacare so that we can make money or we need to, you know, kick people off their health insurance so that they can buy something else. Like, there's not the constituency, like the big uh, pharmaceuticals and the big insurance lobby is essentially more for a system that we have as opposed to getting rid of it. So that's kind of interesting. And, you know, there are some situations uh, like that. And the other thing I'll say, how do we fight, you know, when you talk about what do we do, how do we fight back, that sort of thing. I mean, I do see this play out all the time in the Republican Party and in members of Congress and members of the state legislature here, where you will see big companies, you'll see the Chamber of Commerce be totally on the other side of the Tea Party activists. And a lot of the Tea Party activists and grassroots conservatives are actually more kind of uh, intellectually aligned with with me, they want small government, true free market. Then they look at the Chamber of Commerce in D.C., and they look at the big companies like Caterpillar and Boeing, who want an XM bank. Right. And and the grassroots are putting pressure on their congressmen, saying, "We don't want that. That's crony capitalism or crony, you know, corporatism." I've actually seen defeats of the chamber and defeats of the biggest companies in this country from the grassroots. So I would say, you know, to my friends on the left, you know, pick your battles, but there are places like that where you can make uh, a big, a big impact. So, you know, I really, I really think that the, to me, who I like, who I kind of see the most in common with, who I identify with, you know, are really small business owners and people who are trying to make it, trying to employ people, you know, trying to uh, take care of their families. And they look at the big companies, the big corporations who do rent seek like you're talking about who do have these huge lobby shops and they say i don't have that that's unfair you're now using the power of government to get a competitive advantage in the marketplace you're getting a regulation that helps you and hurts me exactly and that's really the problem that i see i think that's well, where yeah, you, I you mean, and i can really agree oh, absolutely but the, i think the 
I'm just not trustful of, I think that, I mean, I feel like the system itself just continues to reproduce this regardless of who the individual actors are. It's, it's going it, to, it's a self-sustaining ideological system that you're born into and you don't question. Most of us don't question it. It's kind of like the default operating system where, you know, <laughs> everything we do is contrived. It's all based on something, right? It all came from somewhere. That is not always a great place, right? The reason thing, like, that's kind of my issue with conservatism as a position is it makes the assumption that institutions and longstanding rituals and what have you are here because they, they've survived the test of time, right? And I'm not saying that there aren't great things in our culture that we should hold on to, but I think oftentimes people don't really question their surroundings, they don't question their reality, and they can get you know, stuck in this ideology of this is the only way, oh, it has to be this way. I, I think that's a really valid point. And I think, you know, for me, you know, two things have tried, have, yeah, tried to open my mind up. And one is studying anthropology, you know, and kind of the idea of learning about other cultures and taking yourself out of your own culture if you can. And almost as if you're viewing it from, you know, 50,000 feet up looking down, you know, so anthropological, uh, you know, studies and, and books and articles, I think are really helpful in understanding how diverse societies are around the world, whether economics or religion or culture, and then also just traveling, you know, traveling around and being able to immerse yourself in those cultures. Um, and I've been fortunate to travel a lot to, to, you know, I guess half the continents or so, although there's seven continents. So I guess Antarctica <laughs> doesn't count that. And it's really fascinating how different people are organized and there's some commonalities there's some things that are very similar and then there are other things that are totally different but i think through traveling you do get a sense of your own bubble you know whether it's right. austin texas or it's the united states of america or it's the, the uh, western hemisphere whatever it is you uh gain so much by taking yourself out of that day-to-day -day and saying oh interesting they do it differently here and sometimes the germans do things you know a little better and more efficient sometimes the japanese do sometimes the Nigerians do, you know, there are different things you can pick up and learn from. Um, but, but I, I hear your point. I think, you know, again, back in my, my younger days, I probably was more stridently uh, ideological in a lot of these things. I think though, what I've learned about um, my conservatism is that it is about preserving and conserving, you know, the good in our culture and the good in our politics and our system um, through time, as you kind of indicated, but also being open to those incremental changes um, not necessarily radical revolutionary change, but change over time that makes things better, but also knowing that human nature is what it is and that you can't change human nature. Um, and when people do try and do that through the power of the state, that's when it leads to so much violence and chaos and things like war and genocide and all these other bad things in history. So it's for me, it's, it's hey, I'm open to, to different ideas about how to do this. Let's just do it over time. Let's do it incrementally. Let's not you know, change it all at once. I think, to me, that's probably more uh, where I am now as a conservative. Okay. I can respect that. Um, and I'm going back to, you know, the the biggest thing that I respect about you is you're a man of fucking principle, <laughs> which, God damn it, there's so few. It. There's so few these days. And, uh, you know, I would, eh, I'm probably not as principled as you are <laughs> even in my own thoughts, but 
God well, damn, as you said, it. you're still, well, I appreciate that. I know you're <laughs> still figuring out too, your, you know, what you think about things. And I am too, frankly. I mean, I think to me, principles should be about, uh, about things like morality or character, trying to improve, you know, your own character, trying to make good decisions. And again, we all fall, you know, we all, we all fall short. We're all sinful. We're all failures at, at certain things in certain times. But I think principle is about um, a certain way of living your life. It goes back to philosophy, right? Your philosophy on life, which there again, you know, we're always reading and thinking and arguing with ourselves about our own philosophy. But if you do try and approach things with a certain um, certain value system and, and you do your best to do that and everything else flows from that, you know, you're, you're in a pretty good place. But when you, anytime you start to, to just do what's politically popular, what's popular in, a, in the cultural sense or whatever, and you just kind of, go along to get along. I mean, that's so boring and not interesting. And, and frankly, it's kind of fun sometimes. I know you, you can relate to this, but it's fun sometimes to be the dissenting voice in the room, to literally be the only person out of, you know, 300 people to say something critical of someone uh, in your political party or to, you know, do that at church. That's even harder sometimes, right? To say, hey, wait a minute, you know, as a, as a Christian, as a Catholic, you know, I'm not so sure I agree with this thing. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. Um, but I think thinking for yourself, um, thinking critically, seeking truth wherever it takes you is, right. is a good approach. And I don't think anyone has a, 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 a monopoly, I guess, on truth, right? I, I do think that we all have something to kind of learn from each other that gets us a little bit closer to that. And I think I've actually learned more when I've listened to people I disagree with rather than just the same people that I agree with all the time. Right. Well, like I said, a lot of the people that I agree with, I mean, not all of them, but there's a certain amount that it's just like they don't really, they don't know. <laughs> they don't know anything. They just have this position because that's how, you know, I don't know what what's popular or, sure. you know, maybe what their parents thought or, or, have you, or what have you. So it's interesting. Um, man. I didn't get to, I wanted to delve into, as I know you were kind of mentioning uh, faith and whatnot. Have you, do you find yourself being, has that become a more, a bigger part of your life lately or? It, it has. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a new dad, so we've got a lot of 11 month old at the house and she's fantastic. And there's no feeling in the world like, you know, holding your baby in your arms and looking at your wife and saying, we created her, you know, we, with God's help, you know, we made this happen and and we're people use the word blessed all the time for things that they're not really blessed about it's just <laughs> silly stuff but really truly uh hashtag blessed to have this beautiful healthy baby and um it is a miracle to me and i think that you know the love that i have for her and for my family and that they give me is is the is the best blessing you can you can have and you know to going kind of tying this in faith and and philosophy a little bit as you know i read a lot of ayn rand growing up you know 17 years old through college i was a big fan i still like a lot of her work um i think she does a good job of her moral defense of capitalism in certain ways but you know she really hates altruism she really hates religion she really um thinks that you know people basically you know she wrote the virtue of selfishness right and i think that again with and this not just with the having a child but just sort of in time i've realized how much we actually do depend on each other how much we do need each other you know if somebody randomly gets hit by a car and they're injured on the street or, you know, is it really the right thing to just let them lay there and figure it out for themselves? No, you need to go help them. And so there are times when we're in need and times when we need each other uh, and we have to be there for each other, whether it's family or whether it's strangers. 
And so I think some of that has really um, kind of brought me back to where I was maybe, you know, even before I got into some of this, this stuff. And I've never lost my faith. I've never really um, had any crazy change in it. It's just um, I've been open to like hearing different things, but I've kind of come back to where to where I started and, and tested different ideas and, and feelings. And I, you know, I've kind of come back to where um, where I always have been. So. And I don't claim to have all the answers there. I mean, you're not going right. to see me preaching on the street, you know, <laughs> tomorrow, um, or trying to recruit people, you know, to come to my church. But I think, um, I think it is important, an important part of, of my life. And I think it's important for everybody to kind of have that journey and figure that out. Um, and religion and, and philosophy are so tightly wound that you can't have one without the other. So I think they're really important. I think it's interesting that if you controlled for all variables, like you and myself and you, you control for all the variables. Like we're born in the same, we're probably born. Were you born in Shiner also? Yes. At the hospital? We're born in the same fucking hospital. We're about the same age. We're both white. We're both white. You know, we're both males, same blue level eyes, of, uh, same education. level of education, same primary, secondary schooling, whatnot. Same friends. A lot of the same friends, uh, same environment. Aside from like a couple of things, I think, you know, obviously I was like raised fundamentalist Christian and the, you know, Southern Baptist denomination. So that actually, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's ironic that that thought probably plays a big role in why I am open to uh, kind of this postmodern, philo- you know, philosophical strain because it's like in the, in the fundamentalist you know, kind of worldview. It's like, oh, there's a veil of there's a veil of deception over the world, right? That the devil is deceiving us. He's leading us astray, and it's like all these all these different enticements are to keep you off, um, keep you off of God's will or believing, having faith in God, right? There's all these distractions. There's a veil of of uh, kind of smoke and mirrors that he's trying to trap you and keep so he can have your soul or what have you, right? So that kind of it's not hard to make that leap over to okay well you know these things are there's these structures and these messages that we're getting uh carry power and they carry ideology and there's some there's something going on but it's not really what's going on right it's not the heart of of the matter there's something else we're being manipulated by what you know whatever it may be no, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I think it behooves all of us to be, again, critical thinkers, to be somewhat skeptical of, you know, every every um, person and organization that we come in contact with just to kind of see what, what they're all about and where they're going and what they're trying to sell us. I mean, I've kind of learned that the hard way. I mean, I, I grew up much more optimistic and naive, I think, about the world in some ways. And now I'm a little more guarded not in a, a bad way, but just, you know, I kind of want to see where this is going. You know, is this somebody that I can trust? Is this somebody that uh, is going to put the knife, the proverbial knife in my back? You know, and, and those things happen. But you're right. I mean, there's so much, so much of life I've realized. And, and I work in public relations a lot, but uh, so much of life is just marketing. And we're being marketed to constantly, um, whether it is political, religious, business, you know, cultural, whatever. And we the, the one power we have. And I think this is kind of, you know, something that everybody who's listening can can take away. Uh, the one power you have is the ability to either accept or reject those messages and those images and and whether to turn it off completely. Right. 
I mean, I, I think sometimes it's good just to shut it all down and go, you know, out into the woods, go hiking, you know, where you have no phones, nothing, you know, no cell service and really just have time for your own, with your own thoughts. Um, if that's not your thing, you know, there's, uh, there's plenty of other things to do, but we do get so, uh, we do give so much of ourselves and our attention to people that are trying to sell us something. Facebook, they've changed the world. They're, you know, a great company in a lot of ways, but don't kid yourself. They're eventually trying to learn so much about you that they can, you know, raise the price of advertising for, for themselves. And that's fine, you know, but you have to know that going into it. Every, everything you do online, you know, is being tracked and there are, you know, cookies going on your browser for a reason. People want to sell you something and that's okay as long as you know it and you kind of have a little bit of a shield up to say, okay, I recognize this. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's hard or impossible, you know, to do that all the time, but I've seen it so much more now that I've kind of opened my eyes and, and observed that. So I'm sure you know, that's something that you've probably noticed for a while and felt like you, you know, you struggle with that too, just dealing with all of this constant communication, constant salesmanship and knowing too, that so many people are falling for things that they shouldn't fall for people. They shouldn't fall for, you know, really you see the snake oil salesman go in and you're just warning people don't buy that. And what do they do? They, they want to feel good about it and they buy it. And that's something that's really troubling. I think, uh, what I was really trying to get at was more so, I mean, obviously that's an aspect, but I'm really trying to get at is there's a lot of subtleties in the way that, I don't know, power and these institutions and, and whatnot and ideologies are ubiquitous and it's an unconscious thing. It's like the entire cultural system is set up to reproduce a certain type of individual. Um, it's like, I mean, we have some scaffolding, right? We have some DNA programming as a as kind of a jumping off point, but a lot of what determines our lives is based on a, a cultural setting that we're born into. You know what I mean? That that shapes sure. us just as much as our biology, and in a lot of ways, you know, your surroundings, your environment—that's what creates. You know, that shapes you. That shapes your very DNA itself. Uh, for as an example. So that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, there is, there's ideology in, in structures, like in our schooling and the way that we do everything. Right. Sure. No, I get that. I mean, if you were to, to, you know, what you described earlier, us growing up in the same community and, you know, same teachers and friends and all that sort of thing. Yeah. If you were to plop, you know, you in, you know, somewhere in the Kalahari, you know, and me somewhere in an island in the Pacific, you know, what would we look like? What would we sound like? Our language would be different. Our culture would be different. We would probably reflect very much the culture in which we grew up in. Now, that's not to say we couldn't eventually uh, both become very similar because of what's in our DNA and because right. of, you know, um, what who we are as people. We probably would still find similar interests and uh, maybe day, maybe one day, you know, meet at the same university somewhere in Europe, you know. But, um, but no, I think the nature versus nurture debate look, both matter, both right. have an impact. And, and you're right, you know, you just driving down the street, you're constantly bombarded by um, things that that stick in your brain, whether you want to or want them to or not, or in your own house, or anytime you pick up your phone or wherever you go, and, and other people are as well, and, and they're influencing you. So it is kind of this nonstop, um, this nonstop communication, whether it's more subtle or more direct. I like to ask myself, 
if I would have been a Nazi if I was born in that era of Germany. You know what I mean? It's like, how many people would be Nazis? Because that is, like, that's the thing. That's the norm. It's, <laughs> right. you get swept up in, and it feels natural. And it's only in the context of history that you really can, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Really say, oh, I, you know, I, everyone would, everyone would say, oh, I, I wouldn't have been a Nazi. I wouldn't have ratted out those people hiding or what you know what I mean but I think the sad truth is that most people would be Nazis to be quite honest and it's very few people that have the I don't know if it what it is is it enough leisure time is it enough what type of personality do you have to have to really have that detached perspective on life and really question your beliefs you know what I mean yeah uh, it's it's an interesting question I mean we can only look at history and what did happen there and, and say, right. were there people that resisted and stood up? Were there people that knew better, that had an inner moral code that prevented them from collaborating or becoming that? And, and many did. In fact, I think, you know, the Nazi movement as it came to power never really won a majority of the, the voters or the majority of parliament. It was the governing coalition when Hitler became chancellor in 1933. But it never, um, you know, they immediately went after institutions. They, they went after trade unions. They went after the business community. They went after religious. And they basically just used state power to force everybody, you know, into this system. Now, that being said, yeah, you're right. There were probably, you know, maybe it was 30, maybe a third of the people, something like that, that were, you know, with them in hardcore. Maybe some of them also, you know, an extra, uh, you know, 10% or 15% or even 20%, you know, gave them some leeway because they saw things that they liked that was bringing right. pride to germany but you know i think plenty of people did resist and you know in that case in the in the history of what did happen there were plenty of people who stood up um whether it was political whether it was religious leaders whether it was fighters who you know fought them in uh the czech republic or poland or austria or, or in germany or wherever there were people that you know who were members of the military who sort of had to be Nazis to survive, but then eventually led a plot or multiple plots to kill Hitler. Right. You know, of course, um, the most famous being the Valkyrie, you know, movie, play, you know, where Tom Cruise plays the the character there von Stauffenberg, I think. But something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think your your point is t is well taken, and I think it's a good question, and and you know, it has to it has to have to do, it, it must have to do with your own constitution, who you are as a person and, and your own moral code, your, your fear versus your, uh, uh, your bravery, your, you know, there's all sorts of factors that go into it and where you are in that time and what that means. You know, right. if you were just having to say, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys on the street as they put a gun in your face, you know, maybe you would have acted one way, but if they would have asked you to do something terrible, maybe you wouldn't have done that. So it's a, uh, it's a hard question to know the answer to, but um, you know, throughout history, you know, there's there have been evil men, evil regimes, uh, but certainly people who have stood up to, to face them down. That's what scares me most um, about humanity, because my view is, you know, we're the we're the tabla rasa. Essentially, like I said, we we have the scaffolding of biology, right, that determines a certain amount, whatever that and that amount varies, right, pretty widely across humanity, um, but in a large sense, we're kind of a blank slate and that's great in a sense. That's great from a evolutionary perspective because we can adapt to so many environments and that's why humanity is here from an evolutionary standpoint. But in a cultural standpoint, I think it creates a lot of problems. 
because it's people are so habituated to their worldview, right? It's like they don't realize, oh, well, if I was born, it's like my people I know that are super conservative Christians, it's like, well, don't you realize that if you were born <laughs> in Damascus or, you know what I mean, in Riyadh, you, you would not be a Christian. It's like there's, <laughs> there's a relativity out there that people just don't acknowledge. And I feel like I've been fighting that <laughs> my whole life to a degree. It's like recognize like that a lot of the shit we do is just arbitrary. It's, mm-hmm. it's that way because, you know, some yeah. random sequence of events led to this and not like there is this always, I mean, even ourselves, like are, are you the same person that walked through my door an hour and a half ago? Can you point to that person right now? You know what I mean? It's like we have these concepts that we rely on. I think, you know, a lot of it's to make sense of the world. But, you know what I mean? This this is the danger of of culture and how this is how things go astray is, you know what I mean? There's not critical thinking. There's not that a lot of that ability to step outside yourself and really be honest about what you are and who you are. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a good point that, um, again, why I'm so interested in anthropology and studying other societies and trying to travel a little bit and, and put myself in their shoes and kind of try and understand somewhat um, a different perspective, you know. But um, culture is very powerful, and it's um, it was even more powerful in some ways because you, you know, in, in history, because you didn't have international travel and international communications. Now at least there is some element of being able to connect with other cultures, understand them a little better, travel to them. Um, You know, we know more about each other. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be more peaceful or or find a way to kind of find common ground. Uh, But people didn't even know, you know, really, I mean, other foreign cultures were uh, pretty alien. And then when you did interact with them, you were probably more likely, you know, to want to kill them, you know, as opposed to try and figure out who they are and what they're all about. Right. But we are heading toward kind of a more globalized, homogenized culture, which a lot of people, you know, don't like that um, because they feel like the local cultures are being left behind. But with cosmopolitanism does come uh, people being able to connect, you know, whether they were born in some Pacific island or in the Kalahari or in California. So there is some some value there. Do you think I've, ha- I've actually been questioning whether democracy really scales well? to borrow kind of a technical (laughs) you know what i mean it's like how is there a is there a critical point where it you know what i mean it's like there's probably a bell curve right of where the most ideal population size and diversity you know what i mean obviously there's a million variables that go into that but it's like there's got to be a distribution (laughs) where like there's an ideal culture where democracy can flourish Right. And it's like if you're getting so large, it's really hard to get. I mean, we have 300 plus million people in the U.S. It's really hard for one person like a president. Even I mean, how many Congress people do we have? What You know, 435 plus 100 senators. You know what I mean? So it's like out of that tiny, tiny group of people are supposed to represent all of us. I don't know. It seems it seems kind of backwards it seems like an old it seems like an ad- inadequate system to really provide true representation look you know the only 
uh, answer I have to that, I think, is that that's why I really um, do believe that we need more uh, power dispersed from Washington to state capitals and local communities. And that that helps make democracy and representative government uh, healthier and better and more efficient because it is more accountable at the local level. It, it's you know, a lot easier for people to physically drive, you know, to the state capitol in Austin to yell at their state representative about something that it is for them to get to Washington, D.C. Um, and so I've, al- I've always been a proponent of, of that, of taking that power out of a, uh, a capital that is culturally and geographically distant from the people it governs. I mean, right. the idea that so much of what goes on uh, in our lives is controlled by Washington, D.C., whether it's the president, the senators, the congressmen, or even uh, those poor bureaucrats that we all like to beat up on um, and, and often deserve it, you know, they they don't always know what's going on in, in our community and how different it is uh, community to community. So the more uh, kind of power that is dispersed, I think that's the, the, the best, most achievable goal that we can have. And that's really a left and right coalition thing, maybe, is that, you know, if we take some of that out of the federal government, whether it's setting policy on um, abortion, whether it's setting policy on uh, transgender issues, whether it's uh, the budget, whether it's healthcare, uh, environmental protection, all that stuff, maybe we'd all be better off if it was done state by state. And then you also can have states like California and Washington and Oregon, they can go do liberal progressive things and states like Texas can do more conservative things. And at least people can vote with their feet and move state to state. And if you take some of that power from the state capitals and put it in the communities, then people can decide whether San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Dallas, or Fort Worth is better or somewhere in the rural community. So not a perfect solution, but that's what I would say is an achievable thing in our lifetime. At some point, though, it's like once those once there's so much difference in how states operate, it's like, what's is there a point to a United States? Yeah, I you know think- what I mean? Does it like as as a political body? what's the what's the point to well, some degree i think the, the original is it is it worth maintaining on it to be i mean yeah i think the original idea of, of the united states of america was you know common defense one right the colonies that then became states i mean they were concerned about future british aggression or other uh certainly you know battling the the indians or native americans to the west um they were concerned about common defense um having a common currency um, you know, some of the things in the Constitution that are outlined there that say this this is what the federal government shall do and the rest is left to the states and the communities. I mean, that's a pretty good place to go back to and look at, um, you know, and, and, a, and in a practical way, look at what's going on in Europe. I mean, Europe has been integrating, uh, you know, for the last 30 years with the European Union. But, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people are concerned about too much power being in uh, Brussels, for example. But. Europe is sort of going in a direction of integration. They have the common currency with the euro, which has been uh, a good thing for most people, uh, certainly really good for those in the eastern part of the European Union. Um, And so, you know, I think that you're seeing integration go on there. And I think that perhaps the United States, you know, could go a little bit in the opposite direction so that we look more like the European Union uh, than we do, you know, currently with the U.S. with so much power being in Washington. Right. I just feel like we're so far behind in terms of where we are technologically speaking. And it's like, I don't know, borders don't really make sense anymore. You know what I mean? It's like what's this, this arbitrary line where it's like if I'm in this ge- if I'm in this geographic space, then I'm an American. 
And if you're in that geographic space, you're a Mexican. Well, that's, you know what I mean? That's kind of, it, it really breaks down <laughs> when you think about it that way. Because it's like, just because you're you're a Mexican, why why can't you come here? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know. Like, what what is the point of having a, a border? You know what I mean? Like, in I, I this, think... especially, I mean, obviously, you know, in a place and and you know in industri- post-industrial Europe and the US that makes a lot more sense than it does in equatorial Africa for example well I think that you know it's hard not to answer that question without sort of citing some of the potential threats that are out there and knowing okay who's coming over and are they a threat or not I mean that's kind of the current reality we we do have folks that are trying to Kind of exploit uh, the refugee crisis, for example, to come in and, and kill Americans. ISIS has said that they've tried to do that. You know, some of those real national security concerns, I think, are there. That that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, is why we still need a, a defined border. Um, I do think we need to make it easier for people that want to come legally and work here, come and work who don't pose a threat. You know, I want it to be easy for Americans to travel abroad and um, and for folks to come here and visit. And if people want to become citizens, it shouldn't take so long if you're doing the right things and you're a good person you don't have a criminal history you should be able to um i think the borders are much more uh you know it's it's a much trickier thing when you're talking about for example um you know what's going on with like turkey and iraq and syria and places like that where you have you know the kurds right kind of a stateless people that exist in the eastern part of uh turkey and the northern part of iraq and you know that gets to be tricky um if you were to draw a border there, you know, you're going to create all sorts of problems, but not having a state there is that, you know, is that doing more harm than good? So it's, it's not an easy answer. Um, a better example probably is like the North Korean and the South Koreans and the Chinese, right? The Korean peninsula is divided by the North and the South and they could not be different. If you were to do away with the North Korean border, you know, the, the, all of the folks from North Korea would flee to China. It would create a huge, you know, uh, humanitarian crisis in China, which frankly, I would not be unhappy if those people were liberated from North Korea. Um, you know, but I think that there are all those, those sorts of problems that would arise, um, while also conceding the point that a lot of the borders in Africa in particular and in the Middle East were somewhat arbitrarily drawn up, you know, to, you know, as part of colonialism, right? It was just sort of on the back of a napkin in a lot of these in a lot of these places, and that has also led to some sectarian strife. But if people did start to see themselves, you know, um, in a less tribalistic way, and Sunni and Shia didn't hate each other so much, and you know, Kurds and Turks didn't hate each other so much, it might be more feasible. But I think in the age of of those old sectarian and religious rivalries, you know, it it's going to make it difficult to make any major changes to borders. Uh, you know, and, and I think in, in North America, for example, though, Canada, the United States and Mexico, we're integrating more and more, despite, I think, some of the policies that may come out of this, you know, administration and the rhetoric. I mean, in general, I think you're going to see more integration. You're going to see more cross-border traffic. And, you know, we may do, we may actually build some fencing and walls and things like that. But the economic reality, I think, is that eventually we're going to become more and more closely aligned with, you know, Mexico and Canada in particular. Yeah, I was just also thinking in terms of like in terms of the state itself. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem <laughs> it doesn't seem like the best way to do things. The nation state, you mean? The or? nation state. Yeah, it's just these groups are too large and too diverse to really be 
effective or I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you resolve that. And certainly yeah. you bring up a strong point, honestly, about the Middle East. Uh, that's a great, you know, I hadn't even considered that, but there's those areas. Yeah. Obviously like how do you separate that from their history, their cultural history and the cultural memory of those people who have been there for thousands of years Right. But, you know, like in the United States, I mean, you can drive from, you know, Texas to Louisiana and you don't really notice, you know, too much of a difference. And, um, you know, your your driver's license is good across state lines. Nowadays, your concealed handgun permit is is uh, is identified and accepted generally among a lot of states. Right. Um, your marriage is recognized in, in Texas and in Louisiana. Um, and after the recent Supreme Court decision, you know, if you were um, if it was a same sex marriage, you know, it before the court uh, case, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't reciprocal. Now it is. So, you know, at least in this country, the borders serve, you know, a limited uh, purpose, you know, between states that allows for commerce and, and movement of goods and people, you know, between the U S and Mexico um, until they get their act together, probably with the narco traffickers and the humanitarian situation going on with all the, the bad things going on in Central America and, and Mexico, that all the, the victims of violence and that sort of thing, I think you'll probably see, more support for, um, you know, for, for having the borders be somewhat more, um, you know, closed to, to people. So I think, I think in time, some of that will, will open up, but I I don't think that culturally speaking and politically speaking, it's really feasible in this country, you know, to kind of do away with it completely and have some kind of North American union. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely don't think that this would come to pass anytime soon, but I'm just thinking about you know, these sort of assumptions that we make, like, oh, there's, there's got to be a state, or there's, you know, what I mean, there's got to be a United States that's clearly defined, you know, I'm questioning the efficacy of this. Um, and, you know, you bring up terrorism, it's like, I mean, I guess ISIS is a state, they want to bring out the caliphate. But, you know, it's really, I mean, back when it was Al Qaeda, it was more like this disparate network, it wasn't a state actor that we're fighting, right. And so how do you how does a giant entity like the United States counter this lean, mean, you know what I mean? Kind of like the Viet Cong. It's like, right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, well, ISIS has been squeezed pretty good in Iraq and Syria. I think that the Iraqi forces have finally kind of got their act together and are pushing back. So hopefully they'll be gone um, as a kind of unified um, group that controls territory in Iraq and Syria within the next two or three years. But they will always be there. They'll be in, they'll be dispersed. They'll inspire people just like they have in this country. So yeah, you're not going to prevent all the homegrown terrorism. We just saw you know we see that happen all the time in Europe and in the United States. Um, but you know one other kind of comment about the borders that's interesting to think about. You know when the first um, Anglo Texans moved to what is now Texas, it was part of Mexico, and you know the main differences there were that you had to kind of um, become a Mexican citizen and kind of, you know, swear that oath of allegiance, I guess, and you had to be Catholic. And so many of them just claimed to be Catholic, even though they weren't. Um, but, you know, there are different laws in these places. In Saudi Arabia, you know, they have some pretty, I would say, backwards laws, and they don't allow freedom of worship for Christians and things like that. You know, women uh, don't have many rights. And so there are real consequences for existing borders. Um, I would love to see some of those places open up. I would love to see um, the influence from outside, try and kind of bring them into the 21st century, uh, you know, but under just kind of the world as it is now, um, you know, I think you are 
seeing this trend of the nation state slowly dissipate in importance around the world. But, you know, you have to remember, too, that the idea of the nation state really is a 17th century concept. It kind of came about after brutal wars in Europe, 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia. And, you know, but you had brutal, bad stuff before that. You had wars through when you had little city states and when you had empires and you had abuse of power and all those sorts of things. And you had it after after the nation state was created. So I don't know that the political entity itself, um, you know, the way we organize it is, um, you know, the size of it, how much that has to do with it. But I certainly think that this country is big enough and different enough and diverse enough that having so much of our lives being determined by people in Washington is not the best uh, situation. Right. Um, I know we've been going for quite a while. I want to ask one final uh, opinion of yours before we call it a day. Uh, I actually, you brought up Syria. I wanted to get your thoughts on that conflict because I feel like it's not something that's gotten a lot of attention at all. It's kind of like this afterthought that's been going on for like, you know what I mean? What, five years now? Mm -hmm. And it just seems like this weird, I don't know, it's like this weird shadow war with us and Russia and like, yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, this is a war that's been going on for yeah six years or so. It's got more factions involved than you can keep <laughs> track of. It kind of reminds me of the former Yugoslavia, you know, how it fell apart among Croats and Serbs and, and Bosnians, you know, Muslims, Christians. Uh, it, it's a big mess. But, you know, Assad basically still controls, you know, Damascus. And I guess they've kind of retaken uh, Aleppo, the second city uh damascus and aleppo are kind of the key cities in the country and assad is a bad guy i mean he and his father are horrible people they've murdered their own citizens his father i think even used chemical weapons and and homes and you know uh he did some pretty bad things of course he was also known for wiping out the islamists in syria but uh assad you know represents the a shiite group the alawite sect and um you know in some ways he's also the only thing standing between uh, ISIS and Islamist fighters and my religious minorities in Syria, like the Christians, the, you know, the Shiites and others. And so, um, this conflict started, you know, it became a broad civil war. You had a lot of kind of, uh, freedom fighter types, you know, kind of a little bit more pro Western or pro freedom or whatever you want to define them as, but they were quickly kind of taken over by radical Islamists and by, uh, Sunni extremists who want power and who want, uh, to kick out Assad so they can be in power and have all the privileges that that comes with in a place like Syria. So it's been going on a long time. Um, half the population has been displaced, which is crazy. And I don't know what the total population is, but half of them have been displaced. So the refugee crisis is huge. Think about one out of two people uh, in that country have had to flee or go to refugee camp or have had to leave, leave their homes. Um, and then also hundreds of thousands killed as well. I mean, just a, a tragic Uh, occurrence a tragic event and both sides both of the major sides are bad and then there's all these other little factions that probably aren't much better they have a very small number of people that actually want to set up some kind of like democracy or some kind of modern state uh and you know so and you know and i remember a little bit of in defense of uh president obama's foreign policy on syria here (laughs) for a second i remember when he gave the red line speech and he said you know, if they they use these chemical weapons, you know, we're gonna we're gonna attack them. We're gonna get involved. Regime change, all that sort of stuff. And you know, they did. 
But I remember the American people, the electorate at large, Republican activists, Republican voters that I was very familiar with and was involved in some polling with, were very much opposed to getting involved in Syria. Nobody wanted to get involved in Syria. And so the president kind of listened to the voters and listened to the members of Congress and said, okay, you know, he kind of went and said, Congress, if you want to do this, give me authorization, give me authorization. And they didn't. And so we didn't get involved. Um, people kind of politicized all of that uh, right and left. But, you know, years later, the conflict was still going on. Um, you know, Assad has subsequently used more chemical weapons. Uh, the Russians decided finally to get involved to prop up Assad because they want influence in the region. They also have a port on the Mediterranean. I think it's Latakia. Uh, and so they have a port that they want to protect. And so they started doing, you know, sorties and bombing uh, positions of not only the ISIS people, but the all the rebels. And so they were able to help keep Assad in power. Meanwhile, the United States really didn't take much action at all. Um, President Trump com comes into power, you know, um, kind of has this tough talk and then, um, you know, makes the decision to do an airstrike, which I was somewhat surprised by, um, but he d decided to do an airstrike. And apparently there's been a few other things happening. We've got troops on the ground and small uh, numbers and going around helping some of the, the rebel fighters. But it, it's a it's a conflict that, you're right, has not gained the, the world's attention um, as much as it should have, and it hasn't sustained the attention in where it has gotten attention. The refugee crisis got a lot of attention for a while, but it's all off the front pages because people lose interest, and you know it's unfortunate, but we do not want to know what's going on halfway around the world, but it affects us. And, you know, this whole, I mean, what's crazy is that I remember watching the uh, Netflix series House of Cards, and they had a whole season where the U.S. and the Russians were sort of having a Cold War type thing in, in the Middle East along the Jordan River Valley, and it's eerily similar to that, uh, <laughs> but... Hyper-reality, man. It's, everything's blending together. It is. <laughs> fiction and, fiction and non-fiction, there is no, it's all fiction now. Yeah, I mean, who knows what the truth is in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, whether, again, it goes back to that that theme of distrust of institutions and skepticism, whether it's the White House, the Congress, the Washington Post, the Drudge Report, Breitbart, Fox News, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, uh, the parties, the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, you just, you know, I think that there there is, you know, truth exists, but it's also, there's a lot of gray. And I think people are very quick to just sort of give their version of the cr truth, the black and white. Um, whether they're elected office, they're activists, or they're journalists, whatever they are. So you just have to kind of uh, slow down, have a filter, ask good questions, and say, and use your own judgment. And, you know, even then, you may not know what happened or what we should do. But I'll say, I mean, again, having studied foreign policy pretty closely for a long time and, you know, studying my history, it's, it's messy. There's no easy answer, no easy solution. No matter what you do, you know, there's going to be... Um, blowback or there's going to be costs and blood and treasure there's going to be decisions that you make where you cannot foresee the unintended consequences so it's a very difficult uh thing to understand and, and to pursue policy on now trump was beating this drum and i had kind of heard this as well as that uh obama was responsible for isis so i'm um, is it i mean obviously it's not that black and white it's more like we're funding these groups and you know they're kind of saying telling us one thing and doing another do you i, I mean i'm kind of ignorant to be honest on, I on think, this topic you know i think obviously that was you know political rhetoric but i also think what he was saying what he was trying to say um 
was that Obama created the space for ISIS to arrive, uh, to uh, yeah, to arise. And so basically, when Obama kind of reduced our troops in Iraq, kind of eventually pulled us out, um, that it allowed the vacuum to be filled by Islamist fighters by the rise of the Islamic State. I think that was the first big geostrategic point that he was trying to make, and that people others have made. I'm sure you know Senator John McCain has made that argument. But then we also were supporting uh, rebels in Syria when we did sort of get involved and armed them and that sort of stuff. We were giving them uh, weapons and training and, and things like that. And a lot of them, you know, did end up, you know, being affiliated with al-Nusra Front or al-Qaeda or ISIS or whoever. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, a bungled operation. But also it's sometimes hard to know who these people are, right? Anytime yeah. you give guns to people in a foreign country, I mean, what do you really know <laughs> about them and what they're going to do with it? So they could just be telling you what you want to hear. Right. So. Uh, but, you know, look, Iraq, it's easy just to say we either should have gone in or we shouldn't have gone in, right? Like, okay, well, the harder question is, like, looking at all the decisions that were made from 2002 when we decided to go in um, through, you know, the present day. I mean, there's so many decisions that were made that were bad decisions on, on both sides, whether it was Obama or his Bush, uh, you know, strategic decisions that were made politically that got us into trouble, so... You know, I think it just kind of is a reminder that you have to you have to make all these foreign policy decisions, especially the use of military force, with um, a lot of uh, caution and a lot of uh, worry about what could go wrong. Yeah, I just don't think that that kind of military action is worth the trouble. <laughs> to be honest, I feel like the playbook is out <laughs> on the United States, and just bleed us bleed us dry over decades and just keep fighting and costing us money and you know kind of this vietnam kind of approach to countering us and we can't really we're so big that we can't respond to these types of conflicts with any kind of success i mean it's going to be a quagmire every time it's just like you just cannot go in and pull you know create that kind of political change or cultural change in another country you just cannot you cannot export democracy you can't nation build yeah i mean i think that going forward the lessons learned are that we're going to have to empower uh local armies and police and intelligence operations uh to to do the dirty work you know right. i think you're going to see a lot more american training of personnel you're going to see american money you're going to see um, expertise and that sort of thing working with iraqis or syrians or Turks or whoever, you know, to deal with the problems in their, in their backyard. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to the realist versus neoconservative arguments though. And it kind of, you know, this approach is going to look a lot more realist, uh, than anything. It's going to look like, look, we may have to deal with these bad dudes in Saudi Arabia and prop them up because what's going to replace them is going right. to be worse. Right. Which is yeah. sort of, you know, look, I'll, I'll defend Bush on one thing and neoconservatives on one thing which is that they really did come for, uh, to it from a place of uh, a moral argument and a humanitarian argument. And they said, you know, it's the right thing to do to go in, to liberate these people, to help them set up a democracy. You know, even if the um, even if that wasn't possible or even if it was a failure, even if you know it led to some bad things, you know, their motivation was actually to try and go in and um, reduce the amount of oppression of women uh, to get girls back in school in Afghanistan 
uh, to fight radical Islam and allow moderates and uh, modern uh, Muslims to step up and lead. So I think a lot of the goals and intentions were, were good. I think, but to your point, you know, um, how many of those people exist in those countries? How many are able and willing to step up and, and lead? Or do the people there, do the majority of people there want to live uh, as they are? And I'll give you one scary fact, but, you know, in Egypt, which is kind of seen as a more modern, <laughs> moderate kind of state. A progressive, <laughs> right. They're progressive for uh, you know, that area. I think it was the Pew Research Center, maybe, maybe, maybe someone else, um, but some big organization like that, very reputable polling organization research arm, found a, did a study, and they saw that more than 80% of Egyptians supported stoning for uh, apostates, people who leave the religion of Islam and become atheists or Christians or Jews or whatever. 80%. I mean, that's kind of been my point is like this culture that you were born into people, they don't like, they buy into it and they don't question it. Right. Even with higher incomes, with college education, with interacting with the West and with Europe, you know, and the United States. So you have a lot of that going on. I mean, I think you also do have a lot of Muslims in those, in that part of the world that, that, you know, want a more modern, moderate uh, system of government and economics, but the, the the people you know the the Arab street the so called Arab street um, I don't know that it is ready yet um, but I think we've got to find those that support um, modernism that support uh, what we call Western values but I would call universal values um, we need to get give those people a platform we need to support them um, not always militarily sometimes it's just you know maybe making space for them on CNN instead of having the same talking heads right, right. give them a platform encourage them, support them politically. Um, and, and I think some of that goes on behind the scenes, but it's just a difficult proposition. I mean, it's hard enough to make changes in our country. It's right. a lot harder in a foreign country. Well, Brennan, I won't take up your uh, the rest of your evening because we've been going at it for a while. So uh, once again, man, I really appreciate you coming out at great risk to your career, <laughs> like I said earlier. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. We could probably go on <laughs> yeah. until, I feel like I could talk to you until midnight and I'm not even kidding. Likewise. No, it's been great. It's been uh, kind of a blast from the past and um, look forward to doing this again and coming on to talk about other things and maybe seeing where we are and if we've made any progress since right. the last time we got together. Yeah, I definitely like to have you on kind of periodically. Uh, I mean, just you know, just because you're always fun to talk to and you've always got a, a different approach that I think really, you know, is always it's always good. I don't get a lot of that. So thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, we're going to sign off. Once again, Brendan Steinhauser.